0: Welcome back to the show. It's Thanksgiving week here in the US. I hope that everyone is enjoying the holiday. I've had a hectic travel schedule these last couple of weeks, and I've been actually recording a lot of podcasts. Um, I'm home just briefly for the holiday. While I'm here, I'm going to record episodes of Spit and the Grit before heading back out to the Northeast to record a few more podcasts. Um, I'm sure that you've seen the news of the devastating fires in California. There were two main fires, one in Northern California labeled the Camp Fire, which as of today has burned 153,000 acres, resulting in 84 deaths, three firefighters injured, and 18,421 structures destroyed, with 13,906 homes lost. It began on November 8th, and now two full weeks later is 95% contained. The other main fire, which was coincidentally started the exact same day, has since been completely contained. It's known as the Wolsey fire and it burned 96,949 acres, resulted in three deaths, three firefighters injured, and 1500 structures completely destroyed. One of those structures was the home where today's podcast was recorded. This conversation was recorded on November 6th, 2017, so just barely, I mean, almost a year to the day from the time that the fire started. It was basically one year plus two days prior, and it was recorded in the kitchen of Jamie Brissick's home. I had never met Jamie before, but I grew up watching him surf and reading his writing, I cold emailed him, asking him if he'd like to do the podcast and chat about his recent book and upcoming film. He was super cool. He generously invited me to his home. He was finishing a plate of pasta for lunch when I arrived, and he was immediately warm and hospitable. He made us tea while I set up my recording equipment around his kitchen island. And even though I only spent a few hours here with Jamie, to think that his kitchen is completely evaporated is devastating, and I cannot imagine what it's like for him or anyone who lost their home. This episode was originally published on January 4th, 2018, and I'm replaying it today as an homage to Jamie's home. I texted him last week asking if I could do... Anything to help if potentially I could repost this episode and maybe add this intro with the objective of giving listeners direction on where to allocate resource or assistance? Jamie replied, quote, I appreciate you thinking of me and my loss, but I'd much prefer we try to raise funds for the campfire folks. Their situation seems far worse than what we experienced in Malibu. A humble and kind response. I would expect nothing less from Jamie. He recommended that we send any assistance to the California Community Foundation's Wildlife Relief Fund, which was founded in 2003, and grants go to rebuilding homes, providing financial and mental health assistance, and medical treatment for those affected by wildfires. There's a link to that in your show notes and on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. And this conversation with Jamie Brissick is definitively my favorite conversation that I've ever had in the five and a half years of recording this podcast. I hope that you enjoy it. Thanks. Happy New Year and welcome back to the show. Jamie Brissick is a former pro surfer turned writer. He was awarded the Fulbright Scholarship in 2008. His stories have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Surfer's Journal. He's written three books. His most recent book, Becoming Westerly, tells the true story of Australian surfing champion Peter Druin transitioning to Westerly Windena. Jamie is also making a documentary about the story entitled Westerly, which is due for release in early 2018. You can watch the trailer for it on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Jamie and I get deep into that story uh, in our conversation, and the release of the film was largely the reason why I invited Jamie on this show. But the catalyst, the precise timing for me inviting him on the show, was... um, This piece that he had written last year in the Surfer's Journal. I had an awareness of Jamie through my entire surfing life. I knew of him as a pro surfer in my youth. I had read some of his work over the years. But this piece in the Surfer's Journal, The Dazzling Blackness, it really kind of tore my heart out. Um, After I read it, I started to follow Jamie on Instagram. And as often happens with Instagram, I felt like I got to know him personally. So that's why I reached out to him, and that's precisely where our formal conversation begins in this show, which is just discussing Instagram. So, of course, I'm David Scales for Surf Splendor. In today's episode, I wax on with Jamie Brissick, but before I pitch to our conversation, I'd like to read the opening of The Dazzling Blackness, which again appeared in the Surfer's Journal in September of 2017. I'll be reading excerpts from the piece throughout this episode. Enjoy. I'm thinking about Brazilian President Vargas, who shot himself in the heart in 1954. I'm thinking about Pepe Lopez, who died in a hang gliding accident while trying to win a second world title in Japan in 1991. I'm thinking about Ayrton Senna, the Formula One racer who died on lap 7 of the San Marino Grand Prix in Italy in 1994. I'm not thinking about death explicitly, but death hangs over all of this. In A-frame looms. I put my head down and kick. I have learned to feign dolphin to catch waves. I less drop down the face, than insinuate myself into the middle of it, and Superman across the trim line. I'm amazed at how long I can go, that I can almost do off the lips. I ride to shore, trot across the squeaky sand, and run along the one-way street where buses barrel along at dangerous speeds. I enter the Barra Beach Towers from the side entrance for beachgoers. With a tap to rinse my feet and a security lady named Daniela, with whom I chat in my third-grade Portuguese, hop in the elevator and press 9. On the way up, I think about the story I want to write. Rio is the best body-surfing city in the world. Those same iconic granite rocks that brought us Sugarloaf and Corcovado also bring us ricocheting wedges that zipper along north and south every corner of the beach. The bing of my floor, the doors open. I make my way down the tiled hallway, anticipating this late afternoon routine I know all so well. Approach apartment number 905, smell weed, hear Globo News on the TV, knock on door, Gisela shouts, jimmer in the warmest way, door opens, vibrant wife of mine, stands there all sinewy, big smile, glassy eyes, we hug, I kiss the side of her dirty blonde head, it's a world, a life, though I failed to fully appreciate it at the time i preoccupied with the memoir I'm trying to write, with a particularly North American brand of career advancement. I'm a cliche. I take it for granted. Think it'll always be there. I'm terribly wrong. I wanted to open our conversation with a caption you wrote on Instagram two days ago. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. So it says, "quote The trouble with the selfie and the whole posting pictures of ourselves on social media thing is it encourages identification with the self. It embalms us in the wax museum of ourselves. When in fact, the real work is the obliteration of the self. Every gaze in the mirror is a clinging to that very thing we should be letting go of." End uh-huh. quote. Uh-huh. I'm curious. How do you use Instagram? What's your objective with Instagram?
1: Um. You know, it's funny, when I, I was never really deep into social media. And then I kept realizing, you know, I'd lived in New York for a long time. And I was I was really trying way too hard to be successful as a writer. Um, and I really, I, it was it was almost pulling me further away from who I who I tr- authentically genuinely am. And and my voice was getting further from who I am. Um it was it was an, it was sort of like feeling like I was out of my depth and f- being among all these really well educated people and I my colleagues were you know graduates from MFA programs at great schools and I felt like I'm just a surfer dude and and so as and I, and I was trying to write something that was not happening and I was trying literally over years to do it And it was was almost getting progressively worse. And I was getting, you know, I would get uh, writer's block and then I would try to do it again. And then I would question every word. I mean, I couldn't even write a flowing sentence. And and with writing, I think your natural voice is an important thing. So I saw social media as an opportunity to almost do do rehearsals in public. It was Mm. almost like write shitty stuff and put it out there and Mm. embarrass yourself, um, you know, we were talking earlier about stand-up comics. I always thought one of the cool things about if you were if you were a stand-up comic would be, um, you would probably reach a place where it would be a very valuable thing to be sort of absolutely like fail on stage in front of people and to have them not laugh at you at all and and to have them think that you're horrible, and from that you get to sort of rebuild yourself. You'd probably it would probably hurt, and then you would rebuild yourself and really find who, what you're doing. I say that I, I'm a big fan of Lenny Bruce mm-hmm. and I've read the biography of him. I've seen the movie, et cetera. But um, so I saw social media as an opportunity to just kind of write things that I don't even necessarily believe in. It was sort of channeling, letting voices channel through my head or letting things I hear. And I do often have dialogues with going in my head. You know, it's that, that classic thing of like, you have a conversation with someone and you reflect on it later and you're thinking, oh, I wish I would have said this or I wish I would have said that. I mean, I do a lot of that. Sure. It, for, good, for better or for worse. Sometimes it's helpful in writing. Sometimes it's not helpful in my personal life. But um, but it was sort of like, why not just throw those, why not almost like put a window into the head? And I know that sounds like a very narcissistic thing unto itself, but it's sort of, by doing so, I will liberate myself and get rid of self-consciousness because the self-consciousness is the thing kind of clouding anything real to be said. Fascinating. That's exactly what I've gotten
0: from your Instagram. Okay. Strangely. Uh-huh. And, and I wasn't sure if that was an accurate assessment or not. Uh-huh. And the way I would um, state it is like almost everybody, and really the model for Instagram is to post the best version of your life. Yes. People on vacation, the great meals they're having. You never see anybody post Monday morning sitting in their office You know with a cluttered desk or something they're always showing the best version your instagrams i feel like are kind of the opposite they're actually uh, forgive sure cringeworthy at times Uh where i read it and i'm like ooh when the buzz wears off you might wake up tomorrow and delete this or yeah because it's like a peek into a part of your soul that i feel like other people aren't offering a glimpse into Uh and but I also feel like at the same time, it's reflective of other writing of yours that I've read, where it is actually kind of vulnerable and open in a way. I think that's kind of a hallmark of your writing uh-huh. is that there's an openness to it where I feel you're offering something up of yourself uh-huh. that a lot of writers mi- might might actually intentionally try to conceal.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: So I think that your Instagram has been like a kind of a snapshot of the larger... Body of your riding in that sense. You know? Yeah,
1: um, when I was a competitive surfer, um, it was a different era, and there was this idea that you had to ride longer boards in bigger waves. It was you know, pre- toe, toe surfing did not even exist. So when we were on tour, we would go to say France for the events, mm-hmm. and there was a possibility that Hoskier could get six to eight foot. So you'd bring, you know, yours. In my case, it was a six four, and then I would have. Uh, maybe a 6.7 and then I would have a 6.10 in case it got huge and there was this thing we sometimes did and it was Maybe not right before your heat, but kind of in the day or two leading up to the contest, you might ride your six, seven, knowing it's going to be small, but but knowing that there was that thing that you did um, almost in a dress rehearsal way of, of riding this longer board. It's going to kind of draw me out a little bit, and then I'm going to get this on this board, and I'm going to. It's going to feel like this little Ferrari. Yeah, and it's similar to you know watching. We just had the World Series. Watching um, batters. I, actually, I wasn't I didn't see this in this world too, so I might be very dating myself and saying this. But it used to be batters would swing two bats before they would hit the ball right. to step up to to try to slam the thing out of the park. Similarly, for me, in many ways, it's like that. social media is like that exactly that. It's just almost like a warm up for writing. Mm. The, the writing that I do that is that is that I take I guess take more seriously, or that's not just sort of gushing out and and thought, thoughtlessly posted. I wouldn't do that at all. I mean, I, I I do want to have something to say, but I almost feel like there's some liberation, and it's my own trip. I mean, I, I, when I say it's my own trip, I mean another person might be way more comfortable in their skin. I struggle, so yeah. it's it's just sort of trying to find my way through that, and trying to find a way to um, what I think about things, and and, and and I mean, I realize with having written for a long time now is. You, you, it is obsessed. You're obsessed over thinking things. You try to figure out what you what you think of them. You try to think about what you have to say about them that's new, and that doesn't necessarily come in. It doesn't come in a first draft. It doesn't come um, when you just sit down to write. It's often like you sort of chew on it literally in your head, sure. it, or not literally, but but metaphorically in your head. You kind of you've got this thing that you're just sort of you're you're um you're. There's a word for it that's that's not coming to me right now, but um, it's it's obsessing and brooding over that thing, and then ultimately coming up to what coming up with what you think of it and trying to put that in, into the, it, it put it as concisely as possible.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that you've embraced the platform, but haven't conformed to it. You know, like you've made mm-hmm. it your own, mm-hmm. and that's what I love about it. And Mark mm-hmm. Richards is a great account as well, where it's like. Usually it's called Instagram. So usually it's just a short snippet Insta. He gives these long multi paragraph discussions about what it was like to ride Kelly's wave pool or whatever. Uh. And I find myself opening the accordion of the text and like actually spending five minutes reading everything that he said and then reading his replies to people's comments which isn't how anybody's ever used Instagram before, you know. What yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah no. he's made this long form thing out of it, but he's made it his own and I love him for it. And I it, found that yours in a similar but different way, uh-huh. it's like, man, it's a glimpse inside your head that uh-huh. most people are giving me just the polished version of.
1: Right. So, no, and I guess you know, if, if that's one cool thing cuz Instagram is more of a visual medium than other social media platforms. Certainly Twitter's about, you know, words albeit very briefly. But um But I think that it's sort of fun to – I remember when I started on Instagram, there was no revision, so you posted something that it went up. For me, honestly, to be truthful, this is what I do on Instagram. I write something whimsically. I throw it up, and then it's almost like I've written either a couple of sentences or a paragraph or maybe two paragraphs, and almost as a writing exercise, almost as if I was back in school as a writer – it would be how can i make this better what words can i eliminate what, what is that one adjective the right adjective or the wrong ad, adjective what so it's all it's 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 like this little Ru- rubik's cube type thing that i'm just moving around and trying to get it right and it's again it's like it's dress rehearsal the stuff on instagram i mean maybe at some point i'll look back and if it's if it stays in the cloud or however accessible i will go what a cool diary of my life and and in and, and in many ways not a self-conscious diary uh, uh, because i do try to almost purposely embarrass myself almost purposely write stuff that's just stupid Mm. um but the flip side of that is yes i hate i am i am like deeply philosophically against the way we have these social media platforms to kind of romanticize our lives or only show the red carpet moment or the the posing with cool people moment or the traveling to somewhere exotic moment and it's really tricky because I understand that's a natural human thing. It's, it's sort of, but it also, it's just, I don't know, I, I, I guess this is a whole longer conversation, but I, I'm just sort of amazed at how much, I'm 51 years old, I'm, I'm kind of amazed at how much midlife looks a lot like high school did. It's really? just people are just, I, I, I thought, I, I guess I'll be brutally honest, it's, I, it's like disappointing that people aren't more evolved than what they are.
0: I wish somebody would have warned me of that as well. Yeah. I feel the same exact way. We're different ages, but I was like, yeah, nobody told me that like everybody, nobody has their act together as an adult. When I was a kid, I
1: just assumed they did. Me too. You know? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. It's really interesting. But I, so, so in, in many ways, you know, when I was in high school, I was in a punk rock and there was, there were the, there were the jocks. So there were the dudes trying to do something to make themselves look good on the Friday before the game on the weekend and, and to get the cheerleader or whatever. And coming from the sort of punk rock school it was it was sort of like court gesture how could you sort of poke a hole in that very thing that that whole idea of trying to be impressive i i myself in the circles i ran and it was all about some sort of absurdity and it comes from surfing i think i mean, in many ways like the lineage me coming surfing from malibu it was almost like mickey dora taught me this stuff but i never i didn't know sure. it was coming from mickey but but it was the idea of um of sort of just making fun at these at these things that are supposed to be valuable, the things that are supposed to be impressive, mm. um, and I feel myself doing that. So I'm no better than I'm still a high schooler myself. But but I'm no better. But when I see all everyone trying to only show their impressive self, and even you know, there's a lot. We could, this is an incredibly long conversation, but even so, for instance, Photoshop, the way you yeah. know it used to be, you took a picture and you you know. It would hopefully be at a flattering picture, but you couldn't go in and manipulate it and take right. wrinkles out and do get rid of get rid of splotches on the face or whatever and do all these things. And it it's so you know having Trump as president right now and he, he's a reality TV star, turned president, all that. It's it's I'm I'm amazed every day. I'm not I can't speak the best on it because I'm trying to parse it and make sense of it. But I'm it, it, it sort of astonished me. But I think social media, bringing it back to that, is. Um, all those things, technology has provided these platforms to get yourself out there and, and given you the kind of Warholian 15 minutes to, to do what you will with, but it doesn't come from the same maybe meritocracy it once did where you had to actually do something good or you had to have done something good for a while to kind of suddenly get in the face of people. It's it, So it's it becomes sensationalized and it becomes tawdry and and, and absurd.
0: Yeah, and we've certainly... I don't know, we've seen um, people who don't deserve the merit climb to the top of that social media ladder and get all the attention and tons of money and stuff like that. But I think what resonates for me as a viewer on Instagram is sincerity. And so mm-hmm. I think that's where your your feed has resonated with me, where uh-huh. there's a, a certain sincerity to it that I don't get out of other feeds. And so when I first reached out to you, it was years ago, um, I think it was 2015, when you had just published... Uh, becoming westerly uh-huh. and i wanted to talk to you about that book but then you did a lot of press around it and i kind of mm-hmm. was like uh, eh, you know he said a lot of what he needs to say i don't need that i, I know that i need to regurgitate any of that uh-huh. but then through your social media over the last couple of years uh-huh. i was inclined to have conversation with you again and certainly we'll talk about westerly becoming westerly in the movie westerly uh, because that is a big part of your story as well but it wasn't what drove me to actually want to have a sincere conversation with
1: you. Uh-huh, you know uh-huh, what I mean? It was right. more of
0: the day-to-day yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, talking about a couple of moments where I've been on your Instagram and I've cringed, wondering if you would take it down later, are in reference to drug usage and um, drinking. uh uh-huh. And so another post, just to give you an example, it says, On Psychedelic Sunday, I gobbled 1.5 psilocybin brownies and sat in the lotus position at the shoreline, eyes closed, palms upturned, the sound of breaking waves, a kind of womb song. Amniotic fluids washed over me, the hum of riding in a Ford Falcon station wagon in the summer of 66. My father lay his head on my mother's belly, and I gave a slight kick, the first inklings of my dancing seal routine. Drug usage is something that certainly has been a part of surf culture. And as it becomes decriminalized, uh-huh. I um, question, and then it's even being used for treatment in depression and sure. PTSD and stuff like that. I start finding myself um, wondering its value, not only for treatment of things, but also just for exploring creative spaces certainly a lot of writers have notoriously been heavy drinkers or drug users or whatever yeah i'm curious you talk openly about it Uh um have you found it to be what's your relationship with either drugs or alcohol and have you found those things to be beneficial for the process of writing
1: right you know that's that that's pretty much pure fiction (laughs) um what that psychedelic sunday when i was growing up at Malibu, there was it was a really funny bunch of people. I, there, were, there were the surfers, but then there was also a crew of guys who who hung out at the volleyball courts, and most of them were unemployed. And they were they reminded me when I saw the movie The Big Lebowski and the crew that would go to the bowling lanes. It was like it was exactly that, but it was at the volleyball courts really funny characters who were kind of on the margins of society. And they had this banter between them and these inside jokes. And they were really, really funny. They celebrated. They did have psychedelic Sundays where they would go down and all of them would take a little bit of acid and they would play volleyball all day and then go to Alice's, the bar on the pier and drink. Um, I never participated in that psychedelic Sunday. And th- and that piece that I wrote was pure fiction. It was just sort of playing with the idea of, I guess in, 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 I live in Los Angeles. I live at a wealthy kind of country club-esque part of Los Angeles, and um, and there's so much striving, and there's so much sort of, you know, people defined by their Range Rovers or what have you, and I guess that, the writing that is almost just trying to take the piss out of that very idea. It's sort of like I'm just throwing throwing days away, and I'm experimenting. Um, but that said, the, you know, the, and there are elements of that that is all true, but um, no, I mean, I, I do drink alcohol, and I smoked a ton of weed for a long, long time, and I did do... A decent amount of drugs are not? I, it's all relative It's hard to even say But I mean I've experimented for sure But no m- m- In truth Most of the time I'm looking for more rigor More focus um, Trying to be I mean I, I guess those experimental days Are in the past for me um, So my relationship with it now I mean the, the, the funny thing I was having a conversation With a friend the other day There was a period where it was like I couldn't get past noon Without smoking a joint In my 20s um, and now at at, at fifty one, it's um, I'm yet to get there now, but I have friends who are ten years older than me who are who will still occasionally gobble some mushrooms at a party, and I almost, I admire it because it's there's a thing of as you get older where you sort of calcify into you get stuck or you get you get um, you lose the fluidity or the malleability of being in your twenties where it's sort of like you're kind of still just this this like blank canvas and things are getting thrown at it and some are sticking and some are sliding off but you're just finding yourself there's a thing that i've discussed you know i've I've found in my in 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 midlife where um people get really stuck in who they are so in many ways there's almost a great argument to be made that it's valuable to be able to do that and to be able to not have it become a bad trip or not have it sort of awaken all the demons that you've buried and swept under the rug right so that so 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 I, I, there's a part of me that's sort of I, I do think about it. I probably think about it more than I actually do it, but I, yeah. I, I am open to it in a way, and it is really interesting. These the microdosing.
0: Well, that's what I'm kind of getting at too. Yeah, is like we've learned from hun- the last couple hundred years with writers and poets and whomever. Mm-hmm. Like you can go off the deep end. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, but now in this modern era of certainly decriminalization, but also the microdosing and like very specific strains of things. Yeah that are some, like chemically really refined and then just treat either treating something or using it for whatever creative exploration or whatever it then again makes me question the um the value of it or really give more credence i guess to the value of it if we know back in the day it opened up creative pathways yeah. and now we know we can control it and target it yeah I would like to know how that looks for us 10 years from now you no know?
1: it's really it's a great great topic and i think um it's so interesting you know when i was a competitive surfer i always had a very excuse me it was a period in surfing that I, I turned pro in 1986 and i was on the tour until 1991 so I went around the world for five years doing that trying as best as i could to you know get in the top 16 and win a contest etc and, it, you know, this is me personally. There were other people who had a very different approach. But because of that period in surf history where where the 70s period, where there was probably a lot of experimentation, yeah. there was certainly that Eastern influence. There were people doing yoga. There were, the, you know, doing psychedelics and go surf Honolulu Bay and go live in Maui. Um, you had in Australia people going up to Byron Bay and Angeri. And there was the whole kind of morning of the earth period where I'm sure there was a lot of drugs in that. Um, the period that I... Was a professional, it was, was the birth of athleticism in the surf world. You know, Tom Curran, Tom Carroll, those guys trained a lot. And there was, you know, I remember Tom Curran did this thing called plyometrics, which was an a, a Olympic training technique used by the Russians. And Al Merrick, my shaper, turned me onto this. And it was, you know, it was this thing of like jumping and trying to get, get your fast twitch muscles going. And that was entirely new to surfing. And I was fascinated by that. I liked that because it was kind of like finding out what you were made of and, and digging into that. But the um, the the flip side of that was there was also a lot of people who saw surfing pro surfing as this incredible scam, and we're getting paid by our sponsors to go around the world and surf these waves we've read about in the magazines all our lives, and we're going to J Bay and we're going to Pipeline and Sunset, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there was always the two things, you know, the '80s. They're they're almost like turned into a cartoon of themselves now, between the neon colors and the drug use. I don't think the neon was as bright. at the, Maybe it is with hindsight. And I don't think the drugs were as prevalent as people like to make out. It's kind of that the, the older I get, the better I was. And like sure. a lot of the guys from my generation sort of go back and they, 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 their, their footprints are a little deeper in the sand than they were then. But, uh, but the interesting thing was, so as an athlete, I really felt like there was this kind of like clenched fist mentality, this clenched fist spirit that was really important. And I think I do still, do, I do still think it is. As a writer and and a photographer and and an artist, the way to get to something is not always so linear. You know, it's not such a straight path. And so you can be working on something, and you can be trying to figure it out. And and, and I, let me be try to be clear here because like writing good sentences, you know, write, to my mind, good writing involves d- demands a certain clarity, but. But getting to the idea of what that, getting the idea behind that good writing mm. can can come from totally different places, and therefore, and and maybe referring to psychedelic, I mean, or alcohol or weed or whatever are that's almost an unimaginative way of putting it. There's much there. There are things in that family that are not so so um, typically a part of that family. Whatever the ex, whatever the extremes are, not not. I mean, I truly I remember traveling a lot and I remember thinking. Um, Jet lag was its own kind of uh, psychedelic. I mean, I, I really started writing because I would, I was on tour, I'd fly to Brazil, I'd land in some hotel room by myself, I'd be on a totally different clock, because I'd be coming from somewhere else in the world, and I would be up all night alone with nothing to do, you know, and 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 having, in many ways, the dialogue in my head be in a, uninterrupted, because there was no one to talk to, I was alone in, in a foreign country. And, and I felt like, what you know, I look back, on those were really creative moments. And those were moments where I didn't take acid, I didn't get stoned, I didn't drink three glasses of cachaça, but I got to some place in me that um, w- would not be accessible in the routine of my life, would not be accessible with all my friends around me kind of buttressing me up and, and almost keeping me, almost supporting my version of myself that I'm selling to all my friends, if that makes sense. You know, sort of like being in a foreign country just allowed this this weird inter- inner life to come to, to come and open up. So I know I'm kind of go- going off topic here, but with regards to um, writing and creativity, I guess there it isn't. It's almost in some ways the opposite of that. You know, I mean, when you're surfing great waves and you're in that zone, sure, there's a sort of not thinking, letting letting things just flow through yeah. you, and you do that on a wave. But I guess similar similarly that can happen. Um, with art making or with writing in my case, I guess. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's always trying to get, it's always trying to almost like get out of yourself. Um, You know, we started with the whole obliteration of yourself thing. It's sort of, you, you get, we get stuck in our own tropes. We get stuck in our repeating ourselves and, and our, our minds or our view um is shaped by our life experiences and i'm constantly aware of what a limited thing mine is you know it's right. sort of like everything is through the view of jamie and, and i'm and it's like okay well how can i get over to somewhere else or some try to see it from another point point? and i guess that is where things like microdosing and using in a in a therapeutic manner or um or a medicinal manner certain or drugs even a predictable be. manner you know yeah
0: um I think, let's talk about the, your uh, process as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like if you can embrace and really uh, accept the rigors of writing and mm-hmm. make it a part of just your everyday, you'd probably benefit tremendously from writing in all those different States. Like Mm -hmm. what you write with that um, jet lag is going to be very different than what you would write after your morning tea at your home when you're well rested. Yeah. And so um, what does your writing routine look like? And do you find there to be no routine or like, how do you actually do it?
1: Yeah. It's kind of all over the place, you know, um, it depends on what I'm writing. I mean, there's there's more journalism that that require that's more short form. Yeah. That that's it's a little easier because it's not um I mean, it's 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 it, it may be writing about I might be writing a profile of someone I might be writing a travel piece I might be um, I'm trying to think what else falls in that category and personal essays is another story but there's writing that's just sort of straightforward um, and it doesn't. It's, it can be turned around fairly. I, I, it used to take me longer, but now I can turn it around fairly quickly just because I kind of know I can write with a little con, more conviction, I can, and, and it's more about sort of knowing enough about that thing, that person, that place, whatever. It's an and equation then, a little bit. Yeah. Call. Yeah, not an equation, but just having more conviction because I've okay. done my research to okay. get there. It's sort of like, you know, if I were writing a profile of you, I could um, hang out with you for, th- we could go have lunch. And I could write it, and I might find myself struggling, or I could hang out with you for three days, and the you know, and that's a bad example because I'm sure it takes a lot more to get a sense of you. But if I was writing a thousand word piece of you in three days of us talking, we would I would probably be able to go, got a sense, I can do this, boom. Mm -hmm. I find that first sentence and go in. Now the other kind of writing that, and this is the type I much prefer, is more personal stuff, and it's whether it's. And when I say person, I don't mean that solely in writing about myself. Although I do use my, I, there's a lot of first-person writing that I do, but um, but there's the writing where you're sort of trying to figure something out, and that kind of writing I always do. I always start longhand. Um, you know, if we weren't here right now doing this, I would probably be sitting in a chair here, or I might go up to one of the little coffee shops or, or cafes around here, and I would sit in a corner, longhand, and I would. I would just give try to you know maybe leave my phone in the car and um, and just try to go into it and just try to find it's kind of casting a really wide net, um, that type of writing where it's not I started writing literally on airplane I, I would be on a long flight somewhere, and my dad was always encouraging me to keep journals and diaries, I guess, um, as he called it, while I was a pro surfer. So I would be on a flight from, you know. LAX to JFK to uh, to London Heathrow to Johannesburg to Cape Town for the Spurs Steak Ranch. That's like twenty something hours of, um, of travel alone, and then when you add in the stopovers, it's you know you're spending a day and a half sort of by yourself. I would start writing, and I always wrote log hand, but we didn't even have computers then. Um, and there was never any pressure. I wasn't writing for money. There was no. It was purely for myself. So I. So with first drafts of things, I kind of go back to that very thing, which is it's almost taking the pressure off. Sitting sitting in some reclined chair, sometimes even in bed, um, with with a legal pad and a pen. There's I don't feel this constraint. I don't feel this pressure. I feel like I can just sort of go off and find things, and also just find connections because it's a really weird thing that I've that I've tried to stay really open to And that is you start writing about something and you think you you think you're trying to say this. I can wake up in the morning or I can or I can have lunch and go, okay, I'm going to write right now and I can think it's this. And then all of a sudden there's like this digression and it kind of goes somewhere else and then and then it's it's almost as if this whole thing opens up that I didn't even know was there. And it's and that can happen on a walk or a bike. I ride a bike or bike or I had like, surfing a lot that happens. But it's kind of being open to that um, being giving the time to let something kind of um, percolate and form it and figure out what that is. So, so there's that. And there are times when certainly I'll write after dinner and I'll have had a glass or two of wine. And it's not like I'm trying to get drunk and write or anything like that. But it's more like I'm getting out of my own way. Yeah. Um, and I will write something that it's just sort of almost a different window into it. And then I'll look at it in the morning. But 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 the but the final drafts all are all caffeine fueled. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember. I forget who the quotes attributed to. I think it was an illustrator um, that does like a bunch of New Yorker um, illustrations. But I think it was like um, like create recklessly and then edit rigorously.
1: Yeah, that's great. You know, it's so funny because there's a there's another version of that which is write drunk, edit sober. There you go.
0: <laughs> Very similar. Yeah. <laughs> Gisela Mata, 26, green eyes, milky white skin, dad Lebanese, mom Dutch, a husky voice, a pair of sinewy arms that tug at the more long-view, procreative impulse, than the fleeting, fuck-in-the-bathroom-stalls variety. We met through a mutual friend, Vava, a Brazilian photographer living in the East Village. It's one month after 9-11. There's an urgency in the air. Alcohol and cigarette sales soar in Lower Manhattan, as does fornication. We connect, like I've never connected before. We don't fuck, we hardly kiss. Our very limited words take us only so far, but something powerful transmits between us. When she departs on a sad Friday morning, I feel a deep sense of loss. I write her, I send her a couple of CDs, Serge Gainsborg and the Silver Jews, and a burnt orange wool sweater. I think about her constantly. She hardly writes back. One email for every five I send in only a couple of aloof sentences. But I persist. I heed the advice of a friend's girlfriend. Girls move slower than guys, just keep at it. Think of it as prayer. Finally, she invites me to come see her. We meet in Venice during Carnival. We wander labyrinth streets, drink Chianti, and smoke drums at cafes. Marvel at the excellent squid ink Tagliatelle. Sex happens. I love her skin, the way she tastes, Lying in bed, entwined, I hear echoes of approval from way back in the Brissig gene pool. I'm pretty sure I love her, and I tell her so, on the last night of my trip, at a pension in Milano. I also tell her that I want her to come live with me in New York. I remember a line from a book I read when I was on tour. I promise you rainbows for breakfast and orgasms for lunch. I safely rephrase it. There will be fresh breakfast every morning and a decent bottle of wine every night.
1: It was an interesting time because I, 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 it, I really felt the, this push and pull. And I think probably most of the people on tour. I mean, if you were Tom, there were, there were certain sort of freaks of nature like Tom Curran, who was so focused and so on a high plane of, of the, the kind of um, the high of winning events. But then there were a lot of us lower rank guys. You know, my my years on tour, I was ranked in the forties. Okay. Um,
0: there was forty four on tour at that there time. There was no
1: forty four. It was you. The, the goal was to make the top thirty, okay. and then there were two wild cards for most events. So there was a thirty two man main event. Got it. But there were the trials. So I always was always starting from the trials. Um, and the trials were open to anyone that was willing to pay the $100 ASP fee it was the, not the WSA sell it was the ASP and and pay the entry fee for the contest so there were a lot of rounds to get through before you got to the main event where you earned money right so the guys the kind of tier of guys that went around the world for you know my, my peers um, colleagues contemporaries whatever you want to call them uh, at the level that I was at it was sort of partly this possible um, you know, winning the event and suddenly rocket skyrocketing up and getting paid a lot more from the sponsors and having your career kind of just up itself. And you could, you know, the amazing thing was every contest was an opportunity to do that. Mm. One of the one of the one of the real exciting things about being a pro surfer was that is that you were so focused. I mean, a lot of petty dramas you just sort of flew above because you just were so focused on trying to do this thing. But the flip side of it, it w- was um, there was. There was a lot of partying, there was a lot of temptation, there was there was kind of a, a very unstructured uh, lifestyle out of it, where all you really had to do was show up, you know, everything that came down to these 30-minute heats, and around that, I remember talking to Kelly Slater about this once, and he goes, yeah, you know, if you really, if the actual work that I do, which is surfing in competitions, if, you know, I work, I, I work less than 40 hours in a year, that's less than a week, um, and that that's true. So there's all this other time. And how do you, how do you structure that? What do you do? And it's kind of, everyone has their own ways and some people kind of maintain more discipline and structure and other people are kind of like sitting in a hotel room, smoking weed all day long, but then they've got some great natural skill that they rely on and then they just pop out and do it. So getting to the writing thing, pro surfing was kind of a great preparation for that, but it was also, uh, I had a lot to learn when I started writing, um, I came to it through the back door. I was, I'd been on t- tour for five years. I had a girlfriend who lived in Sydney, Australia. I was living there. Um, and my career ended abruptly. It was 91. There was a recession. Uh, Quicksilver had just signed Kelly Slater. And they had to let go of a lot of guys because they had a lot of money invested there. And they sort of forecasted a, a bad year ahead. So I was one of many who got cut. And I kind of expected it. I mean, I'd been on tour for five years, and I wasn't exactly flying up the ranks, rankings. Um, so, I was in Australia. I was interested in writing and reading as well. I was just interested in, in literature, I guess. And uh, my friend Andrew Kidman was the editor of Waves magazine at the time. I ran into him one day surfing, and he asked me what I was doing. I said, "I'm off the tour now," and uh, but I'm really interested in writing. And I was going to, you know, I said something to the effect of like I was going to get in touch with you, and I wanted I want to see if you're interested. I'd love to write some pieces or a piece. And he said, "Well, your timing is really good. I actually need an associate editor." and you being so steeped in surf culture you'd be perfect so i got in through that but it was many, in many ways it was it was an interesting process because coming off tour i mean you know you, you being a pro surfer, you really, the inner narrative that you have is kind of almost like a um, Muhammad Ali, like I'm so badass, I can take down anyone, and you go on and on. That's literally the looping thing in your head. And it's and it's a good one if you're trying to win a contest. It's not exactly a good one. <laughs> Writing is, <laughs> it's not, it doesn't necessarily jump over. But I thought, you know, God, I've got so much to say, and the world, the world must be just dying to hear from me. And, of course, that was not the case. <laughs> so it was, in many ways, it was sort of... Um, I had this big ego, which maybe gave me the audacity and the, and the, the audacity to basically to say I could, I can be I can work part-time as an associate editor at this magazine, but I can try to find my way as a writer and it did. Um, I was coming at it later than most. I was 25, 26. It wasn't like I went to school, off to college knowing I wanted to become a writer and having that discipline, you know having to, to turn in assignments or, or write papers for school. I didn't have that at all. So it was a slow, it was a slow uh, curve, I guess, learning curve. Um, but I tried to, I just, I tried to apply in many ways, the same things that I'd learned from surfing over to writing in that. it, and, and I had, you know, good friends and support system and people, artist friends saying, you know, you got to just, it, it's fairly obvious stuff, but the more you write, the better you're going to get, the more you read, the more you're going to learn. So it was just kind of, gluing myself to the chair really which went against being so such a jock really um, or being so engaged in something so physical it was hard it was almost as if i had to slow my metabolism down when you're hiring for a small business you want to find quality
0: professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through linkedin jobs free that's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free terms and conditions apply
1: why did you want to be a writer so badly i mean i i guess i i couldn't believe what was happening in books um I started, and I started very, very naively. I mean, my father gave me books when I would travel, and I would be, I would be on a plane for a long time, and he would recommend books according to where I was going. The the writer who really inspired in me, the the desire to, to write was uh, Paul Theroux. Um, I'd read a book called the, the Family Arsenal. It was novel, but then I started reading his nonfiction, and there was there was there was something to the effect of so, he he'd written something to the effect of. Um, a writer is a, is licensed to ha- is licensed to an education in the public eye. In other words, all these pieces are going to go get published somewhere. But ultimately, it's really just it's a selfish pursuit. If I want to learn stuff, and I really did have that um, as a pro surfer, and this may have been my mistake, but it was such a myopic focus. I kind of had these blinders on, and when I stopped, and I did, and I wanted to be a pro from the age of 15. So for 15 to 25, for 10 years. All the high school years, you know, all those formative years where there would have been probably a lot of fun happening with parties and girls and jumping in cars and going over here. I mean, I did do that, but I was really, I, I, um, I really had my eye on this, on this thing I wanted to do. So when I stopped, and when I kind of, it was this thing of like, I can't believe my, my, my dream is over. I can't believe my pro surfing, as everything I have wanted, and, and suddenly these five years flew by, and I've lost my sponsors. And what am I going to do? That. That terrible, I might you know, the rest of my... It's all downhill from here was what I really felt. Um, quickly turned to, oh my God, I can't believe how much I've been missing. And there's so much interesting stuff in the world. And and I've been living in this tiny bubble. Yes, I've been going all around the world. But I've been, I've been in this little tribe of guys who are not, not the interesting minds that uh, I, I aspire to surround myself with. So, So it was kind of this like shedding off the surfing thing and going into... Um, just learning things and so, yeah. so being, a, being a writer it wasn't I mean I, I, yes I always had words I always thought in words and I always, I always had kind of I was chewing on sentences from as early as I can remember I mean literally when I was about five years old when I was learning how when I was learning the alphabet and how to write and we wrote it in those big lines with the broken I had a nervous habit of, with my right hand which is what I write with I would write like right on my leg hmm a shadow writing there was nothing i would be writing with my index finger it was just like my finger was going it was a nervous tick and it was and it was related to the thought to think so i thought in sentences i guess is a way to put it but it wasn't so much oh i want to be among the literary crew it was more like i want to learn as much as i possibly can which in many ways i think is what writing is you know i mean there's the kind of craft side of it but yeah. i think a lot of a lot of writers are just genuinely curious people and they and they ask a lot of questions and they maybe don't get stuck too much in one groove so it's kind of at least for me i shouldn't generalize like that but i mean i think it was the idea of being able to um run in a lot of different circles and not be limited and i felt like i was so only in the surf world and there was a kind of frat boy kind of thing it was a wonderful thing and i love all the guys that i was pro i was on tour with but it was also just this it was it was a very narrow focus. I mean, all conversation sort of defaulted to um, the waves, who won the last heat, right. and all. This. When I got out of that, I was living in Sydney, and Sydney was this perfect little microcosm of a city. Because I mean, not to discredit Sydney is a fantastic city, but it's a small city in relation to say, if I if I'd have gone from being on tour to New York City, I probably would have been. It would have been too big and broad and tall, and it would have intimidated me. Sydney felt manageable. Um, and it was this way I started hanging out with writers, artists, you know, visual artists, poets, musicians. And it was suddenly so cool. And I kind of changed my my clock to staying up late at night. And I'd go to pub. I'd go kind of like pub crawling, hopping all around the city. Um, I had a nice car, but I often hitchhiked just for the sake of it. It really was as if, like, I'd done LSD for the first time and it had nothing to do with LSD. It was more like the blinders came down from being a pro surfer and I'm still... I had this like insatiable curiosity, and so I little I lived on the northern beaches of Sydney. I worked in the city at the magazine, was right in the what they call the inner city of Sydney, um, and I would go in. I had I, w- I would just kind of have these big nights and hang out with all sorts of people and walk from one place to another. A lot of times alone, and I would hitchhike in. So it was it was it was like there was this cool thing of I could have driven my own car, but I would hitchhike just for the sake of spending 30 minutes in a car with someone i don't know
0: yeah
1: i wish I, I i i and i'm not i don't i'm not you know i'm probably exaggerating a little bit but i'm not really exaggerating and it's true but i i miss that i mean i really that i really it was a fun period um when i hear
0: you talk about it, i know that you're only on the tour for five years and you've been writing for 25 years but it really feels like you've enjoyed your career as a writer more than a pro surfer. Like when I've heard you talk about your pro surfing career, mm-hmm. there seems to be a bit of anxiety associated with it uh-huh. and never quite settling into it and certainly not being in that top 10. Uh-huh. And as a writer, I feel like you've really kind of stretched out and found your voice in your space and that you're really enjoying it.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I don't know if that's an accurate um, assessment of it or not.
1: Yeah. It's fun. You know, have, I don't I don't look back... This could be just just this. This could be my own like self-rationalizing. But I I, I remember when I stepped off the tour, uh, I was talking to Al Merrick, my shaper, who is such an incredibly wise, so full of wise words all the time. I, mean, I admired Al so much. Um, and we would always have these great talks and we'd be in the shaping room and he'd be carving out this beautiful surfboard and he'd have a mask on, but he would peel it off every once in a while and say something. And everything he said was valuable. I really, and I, I soaked it all up. But I remember when I, when I told him I was stepping off tour, he said something to the effect of, you know, well, I wish, you know, I wish you well, blah, blah, blah. blah. And, and, and he goes, but you know, the the higher up you go, the the lower, more you have to fall. And it was kind of a nice way of saying like, you were ranked forty-fifth in the world. You don't have that far to fall, <laughs> Vers- versus versus the world champions in my ear. And I guess the one thing that I've come to realize, and this you could call you can feel free to think this is absurd. This may be the only way I rationalize because at that time I thought all I want, you know, I really it was weirdly like your ranking on tour defined who you were, your state of mind, your how happy you are sad. So when you were low, you were bummed out. If when you were at the top, you were able to swagger and peacock around. It's kind of disgusting, quite honestly. I, I don't. I don't like that the world works that way. Um, but when I when I got off tour, I really did find a lot of the. It was almost like the more people define themselves as the the, the the surfing champion, the more they almost got. I and we started with the Instagram post, the kind of wax museum. It was like they were embalmed. They were stuck. They were cast in in, in you. Oh, you're the former world champion and and granted i'm speaking to you right now as a former pro surfer so i'm kind of it's this almost hypocritical but i'm also commenting on myself i don't necessarily take myself i'm i'm amazed that still being a ex-pro surfer defines me on some level sure. but that thing of being defined by something that happened decades ago is a is a scary business for sure yeah, yeah. so i guess what i do like about writing is um you know, one of the things about being an athlete is there's, a, there's an expiration date for the most part, although Kelly Slater's doing a great job of stretching that. But for the most part, before you're even halfway through your life, you're, you're, those, your greatest athletic days are going to be ending. And what are you going to do next? And you can kind of rest on those laurels and you can be the legend dude. And, and it can be all about kind of looking backwards to that thing. What I, what one of the, you asked me why I wanted to be a writer. I realized all my heroes were 50, 60 years old and that was very different to surfing all my hairs were 23 24 25 so i had this i, I really it, it, you know for better or for worse when i when i stepped off tour and i started getting interested in writing and i realized how much i love this and i realized there was this incredible self-expression that could happen on the page that i used to do on a surfboard yeah. um, and i thought wow and i've got decades to get good at this hmm. and if i keep you know you can. I mean, there are writers who are putting out great books who are eighty. Oh, so, yeah. so that was there was something really nice about that because the one thing that I did know, and I tried to, I, I was sort of in denial of, but when I became pro, a pro surfer, is it was as if there was an hourglass and someone just plopped it down and the sand was running out, and I knew that, yeah. and I didn't want to think about my plan B or what I was going to do after because the one thing about being a competitive athlete. You almost have to sort of the more there is at stake, the better you do. In other words, like if you have an easy fallback, it almost softens your competitive drive. Sure. That's why we see so many great athletes who have come from you know rough backgrounds or, or bad family stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's like um, every, everything's at stake here, and I'm going to make this happen. So, so while on tour, um, I didn't I didn't even think about what I was going to do after to uh, being uh, you know what I, my post pro surfing life might be like, but. As soon as I got in, after it suddenly became, oh, there's this thing. Tim Baker, who's a really great Australian surf writer, he 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 was a friend and mentor at the time, and he said this great thing to me right when I I said I'm really interested in writing, and he goes, "That's so cool. Writing is like an inverted triangle. The higher up you go, the wider it gets. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger." It was such a wonderful thing to say because I've absolutely found that. I mean, I think you know, it's kind of the world of ideas, and it's kind of the idea, the the thing of. Following the things that you're passionate about, and it just keeps going. And um, my hope, and I'm trying to do it, is to a you know, be be successful enough as a writer that an income can follow that. So, in other words, I'm not writing fully compromised things that I need to make a buck on. It's more like these are the things I'm. If you, if I were a trust fund kid and I had you know a million dollars in the bank, I would still be doing this thing. Sure. So it's that you know that to me is really great. Well,
0: do you? Uh, kind of jumping ahead in the timeline but we'll come back to mm-hmm. um do you currently subscribe to or read any surf magazines
1: i read the surface journal and that's pretty much it okay yeah i mean the
0: criticisms of surf magazine writing are pretty well known like we talk about it a lot on the show yeah and um you know, I, uh, using this term surf journalist is even kind of a funny term because it's not real authentic journalism more often than uh-huh, not. Uh-huh. And then literature as compared to what we're reading in magazines, couldn't be more further departed, you know? Yeah. So what was your role working in surf magazines? I heard once you refer to it as basically it was like writing press releases for surfers or for the surf brands uh-huh. more than it was actually writing yeah. journalism. Yeah. Um, what was your experience, firstly, and then secondly, where have those magazines failed us? Like, why are you not subscribed to Surfer Magazine?
1: Uh huh. Um, the first part, you know, I was so I worked for Waves and Tracks in Australia in the early '90s, and then I I decided I wanted to be back. There was it was a really really great time for print media in the early '90s. David Carson was uh, yeah. the art director of Surfer. There was a magazine, Bikini and Raygun, in. Uh, In Los Angeles. And and I realized, and there was no internet back then. And so I was living in Sydney. And the more I got interested in, for lack of a better description, popular culture, I mean, I was interested in sort of more than just writing, but everything that was happening then, it was kind of, you know, tapping the zeitgeist, you might say, I realized Sydney was not the best place in the world to do it, because everything was coming much later. That was movies, that was music, etc. So and magazines and I was a magazine junkie. I would go to the newsstands, but I was reading, you know, the Ray Gun magazine from two months earlier when I lived in Sydney. So I thought I got to go back to the US. Came back to the, to live in Venice Beach and I lived this kind of hyper bohemian lifestyle. Um, and I became a, a staff writer for Surfing Magazine. Nick Carroll was the editor then. He put me on a retainer. I got to travel a bunch and it was so fantastic. And I really, and 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 I was really fortunate i realized because having been a pro surfer i guess i got away with a lot of stuff that i might not have otherwise there was a sort of first person slash self indulgence side that i was that they that they that they indulged me in that i that that came from the fact that i'd just been on tour and i was literally going back to these guys that i had you know i had i had an inside um insider pass that someone else might not have right um so I did that for several years and then in 97, seven ninety98 I got the opportunity to be the editor of surfing magazine and I it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do but I kind of felt that I, I wanted I needed money for one I wanted more structure and discipline and I did want to sort of try challenge myself to have this position so I, I became the editor in 1998 and in truth you know and I and I say this lovingly to all the people I work with it was a terrible experience I was so innocent, and I guess somehow I'd been sheltered from the way the magazines work and the advertising and that kind of church-state division, which I thought was pure. And as soon as I got in there, I realized that all the photos in the magazines are coming from who's advertising, the the, the people who are being profiled. The tra- you know we would be planning a travel issue, and the travel issue was to go abroad and be exotic and get out of Orange County. And then suddenly one of the ad sales guys would come down and go, I just had lunch with such and such from such and such brand, and they're gonna be advertising the inside cover for the next year. And we I promised them that we're gonna cover their surf contest at fifty fourth Street Newport Beach this weekend. And that's the next issue, and that's the travel issue. And I'm thinking, that's not the travel issue. And so I really it was really a tough thing. And 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 it, and it disillusioned me, quite honestly, because I I grew up on surf magazines. They meant everything to me. And I believed them, and I believed in surfing and surfers, and I believed that there was a sort of level of integrity to all the all the keepers of the chant, so to speak, all the keepers of the lore. Um, and when I got in there, I found that everyone was sort of compromising to to the big business that surfing was growing into. We're, we're at such a post place now sure. that those, you know, the Drew Campion surfer... Steve Pezman, Surfer Magazine period is so far in the past, um, and so you know that's so it was disillusion. My the reason why I don't I'm not an avidly in it is just because I, I in many ways I feel like because I was so deeply into surfing for so many years. There's all this other stuff that I never got to, and I'm just I'm still getting to it. And and it's so I do read I you know I read Surf Mag, Surf Blogs, Websites, etc. But but it's it. it it's kind of a guilty pleasure. And, and that might, that's my own issue, really. But it's not, I just sort of feel like there's so much I didn't get to do. You know, I have friends who, who went to four years of college, they got degrees, they had a more conventional upbringing through their 20s, and then they came to surfing later, and they're the most passionate surfers, and they got quivers of boards bigger than my own, and they only started surfing recently, and they read all the stuff and the swell forecast, all that. For me... It, it's not. I, I don't. I don't feel like there's that much for me to be to learn there. I mean, there's a way of tapping into surfing right now, and I love John John, and I love design, and I love all that stuff. But I just, I don't. There's so much other stuff I want to learn, and it's sort of, sort of so many hours of the day, and so many years left in your life, and so I don't make it a priority. I still surf a lot. Yeah. But uh, you know, there was there was am the, quoting Mickey Dora again, but there was something Mickey Dora had said about you know when you. When I when there was surf and I, two things like one, there was maybe I'm like conflating quotes, but there was one about sort of when I go to the down I surf and then I just leave the beach, and then the other thing is you know when I if when the waves turn off that surfing doesn't exist. In other in other words that that um, I go surfing the act of surfing and I do write about surfing a lot and I write about surfers, but I just. I don't have a stack of sort of surf research stuff back there unless it's related to something I'm writing. I
0: all of that resonates with me. I mean, I'm sitting in your home. There's nothing surf related in your home. Uh-huh. You, you would not know you were a surfer uh-huh. if you just walked in here randomly. Yeah. And my home's the same way. And um, I actually don't most of my circle of friends aren't surfers, you uh-huh. know, and like uh-huh. I, I feel the same way where for a long period of time in my life, when I was younger anyways, I was solely all surfing all the time mm-hmm. and the luster you lose a little bit of the luster i think you appreciate surfing more when you step out of it and go spend an evening with friends who work regular jobs who don't talk about surfing at all then yeah. you wake up in the morning and you go to the beach you like it better for some reason yeah you know? yeah like finding balance in yeah. life is all that it is you no know?
1: for sure yeah and um it 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 can be so all consuming, and it's almost it's it's almost like a, an addiction or something where you yeah. sort of once you open that thing up, it can keep going. I mean, there used there's this Malibu Classic or Malibu Invitational that's happened every year, um, and I've been invited to it. And there's a Legends division, and 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 a lot of my friends are in, and I've been invited into it. And and I've never ever wanted to be in it. And my peers say, "Why don't you surf in it?" And I'm I say like, I don't even want to open that thing up. I yeah. mean, it's sort of, I. I a, I, I will get suddenly competitive, and then it'll come, turn into training for the event, and then yeah. it'll turn into maybe being pissed off if I didn't make the final or something like that. And it's just, uh, for me, it sounds sort of corny, but it's, you know, it's com- it's communing with nature, it's the going out, it's like leaving all my terrestrial concerns behind and going out and kind of just... Meditating on the horizon line, totally. trying not to put my ego into it too much, trying not to be bummed that I probably surfed better ten years ago than I do now, yeah. um, and just having fun with it and and letting it just sort of all wash off and wash over me and thinking about it. But that's all. That's the rest of it. I mean, I love Kelly, and 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 in many ways, Kelly's prolonged career has been a great thing. I think there's a certain. Uh, uh, th- people of a certain age where where Kelly is their sort of thread into it because they can relate. There are a lot of the guys who I don't, I don't know enough about them to care deeply about them. I mean, the styles on a board, you know, good surfing will always resonate and connect, but I don't know their backstory. I can't, I'm not rooting for them the way a guy like Kelly or, and John John is that for me today. You know, he's like the one guy I'll watch um, a contest and as long as John John's in it, I'm in it. But if he gets, if he's out, I'm kind of out. Um, and the other thing, you know, this is not talked about that much, but, um, surf contests take a lot of time to watch. And there are, there are what, 10, 11 events in the WSL, but you know, uh, you talk to sporting people and it's like a basketball game happens pretty quickly. A football game is a little bit long, you know, baseball, as we've just learned can go for a few hours, but you know, surfing is like a cricket or it's like a a tennis match where it's days and days and days and days of watching And I just don't. I don't have the time. I don't. It, sometimes it's just a sort of distraction. So I'll yeah. turn tune in later. Um, and I, it's fun. It's absolutely fun. But it's, I just don't. There are a lot of fun things that I don't necessarily want to allow myself to do too much of. Sure. Why do you like John John? Um, you know, a couple reasons. One, I in two thousand six, I went with with John John, his brothers, his mother. The late sonny miller who is a great filmmaker and, and a dear friend and we went to uh south africa to J bay for the there was the billabong pro event but we were making a film for o'neill and we hung out i think we were there for about 10 days but it was so much fun and and john john and his brothers nathan and ivan um reminded me so much of my upbringing. I have, I have an older brother who died, but I have an oldest brother who died and a brother who's a year older, but we found surfing the same way. It was almost like flashing back to those days where, you know, sand, building sandcastles and fights. I mean, they weren't that young, but they they had the imaginations of kids and the sort of fighting in the back seat with the elbows. So it was this kind of nostalgic reminder of my own childhood. But then also, um, I love John John's style. I mean, it's such a, it's such a, it's so hard to explain, but his style seems like an important thing to him. Um, I think the people he looked up to uh, are in there somewhere in like the in the in the sort of DNA of his style. Uh, one of the guys in my generation that I love so much was Matt Archibald. Yeah, and he had that kind of cocked front arm, and John John has that. I don't know if John John watched Matt at one point or or maybe whoever, maybe Jamie O'Brien watched Matt or had got a little bit of that. But it's that thing of being you know, these these sort of imprints that go on and so there's like a lineage back. And John John there are guys today who seem so surfing has gotten so in the air and so gymnastic and 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 kind of um there are a lot of moments if you were watching a clip of someone and you and if you sort of freeze frame in certain places, there's a lot of really ungraceful moments. Totally, bull legged, you know, arms hanging in really bad ways, and it's sort of setting up for some big boosting thing. You know, John John is rare that there's that moment. Right. It, there's this, it, there's this grace. I grew up skateboarding in the '70s, and the dog towners were all my heroes. And as you probably know, the dog towners it was it was skateboarding was this sort of surf surrogate. It was this thing you did in place of surfing, but that era of the 70s, style it, style was a very key component. It was about being effortless and grace and flow. Um, you didn't want to look like you were trying. You know, there was a lot of kind of keeping everything in a knock-kneed style. It was really funny because like the skaters of that era that didn't have grace really skated sort of bull-legged. They looked like they were riding horses or cowboys or something. And all the Dogtown guys, if you watched them, they all had this Tony Alva, J. Adams, real, everything was in. And and that's so deeply ingrained in me. And so when I see John John, I see that. Um, other surfers who I won't mention their names, but they don't. I don't get any of that sense of style.
0: Um, one thing that you've talked about, or it's kind of infused through things you've said and writings and stuff, are are about how um, surfing has become so homogenized and such big business that. Nobody kind of steps outside of the company line anymore. Mm -hmm. Whereas you had Dora as a reference point in Malibu who was big and brash and said what was on his mind. Mm -hmm. And then nowadays, everybody's job is on the line Mm -hmm. and you don't have any radical counterculture personality types anymore. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, you know, you see things uh, for every bubblegum you know, Britney Spears that comes along. Mm-hmm. There then comes Rihanna as a resistance sure, to it. Sure. You know, maybe that's not a great example. No, no,
1: I get it. The, the sort of counter trend. Yeah, the world's gone digital, so we have artisan culture and people make pickles. Exactly. In Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, sure, sure. And
0: so, like, while I mean, like Andy Irons and Bobby Martinez might have been like the last mm-hmm, guys mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. that era, mm-hmm. and John John couldn't be more PC. Yeah, you know, he's he doesn't say anything out of turn ever. Yeah but he's also cashing $4 million checks. And sure. like, so I get it. Like yep. I would tow the company line too if somebody was offering me that payday. But I wonder if for either print magazines, for a brand, for a professional surfer, if we're gonna see that next, you know, like a radical divergence.
1: No, that. it's it's such a great question. And I think about this because, you know, it's. but the thing that's tricky is we are in this period where I mean, you know, the one thing that I was privy to, which was really interesting, is the emergence of the free surfer. Um, Matt Archibald was a great specimen. Uh, Willie Morris was a guy of my generation. Excuse me. But it was this, um, this, you know, typically there was this sort of blueprint or mold of what it, how to be a pro surfer, and it was get on the tour and then climb the rankings. We had photo incentives where you would get paid based on the stickers on your board. Literally, like if the logo was visible, you'd get, you know, in your contract... 200 bucks from whatever brand well,
0: or a different paycheck based if it was the cover or the center spread or a yeah. Quarter. yeah
1: yeah and so that so that sort of took off and then there were these and then what happened was that this was you know late 80s there were so many events on tour that there was no surfers around to go on the trips to maybe get like the new board short out that they need to run the ad next issue so then that opened the store for these free surf guys where there was okay by making it by going, I don't need to be at all the contests, but I still tear it up, and people want to see me in the mag. The, the companies have these these you know photo trips where, and the photo trips they really started less about editorial, more just to get photos for ads. But then they would go to somewhere and get good waves, so it would turn into a story. And there was this thing of oh, these guys are scoring um, you know a lot of coverage in the magazines and maybe being maybe being more more valuable to their sponsors than someone that's placing in the middling ranks off on tour. Right. Um, so that opened the door. And, um, but the thing, so, the, so that, so that became a new phenomenon. But the thing is, is we've gone, we've gone so far that in many ways, the rebel surfer is, it's kind of like, there's no, the rebel, sur, the guy that, the great, the really talented surfer that rebels, Dane Reynolds would be an example right now. And I know, I, I loved it. I was I, fascinated by him. So, and I say this with utter respect, but. But it's still within, it's still with eyeballs on him. You know what I mean? That, that kind of, the rebellion spirit is sort of done with, a, there's a self-consciousness to it that is just the result of the, the age we live in and social media and the ubiquitous digital platforms that surfing falls on, you know, that surfing is showcased on. And therefore, it's not... It, you can't really be soul. Like the, the the guys that are the soul surfers are still commercial surfers, and they're still getting paid to do it. And they're still they can't. You know, the guy that goes the, the, the let's put it this way: the the, the the real soul surfer, we don't know who he is because he's not. We don't. We've never seen him before. He's yeah. living like in Oregon, and he's an incredibly talented surfer, but he's never been in the magazines. It's like as soon as you step in, you're so you're you're part of that machinery you're part of the kind of the, the the supporting the brands and the and the and the kind of wheel spinning the whole surf thing and and therefore it's i don't think it's it's hard to stay innocent in that it's hard to be untainted it's hard to make your moves unself consciously i mean i love dane reynolds but but he's still a product of all totally. those things i mean you know, all all of his chapter 11 or, or whatever it was it's still it's he's still making a movie about himself, and, and and even if it's sort of tearing down his relationship with Quicksilver or his relationship with being a surf star, you know what's fascinating about the day and age we live in is you could be, let's just say hypothetically, a, a movie star that's that's chased by paparazzi. You could be that person who, who and his, who wants their privacy guarded, and that's their whole sort of recurring narrative. With with where that person could go home. And Instagram, oh my God, I was stalked by paparazzi. These fucking people won't leave me alone. And they have a million followers on Instagram and everyone likes it. So it's, yeah. and no one sees the irony in that. That's right. the crazy thing. Yeah. It's, and it's not even ironic. In fact, it's just totally normal. So I guess that I relate that to the soul surfer thing or the counter trend to the commercialization, bubble gummification of surfing. Even that thing that's the opposite of it is still it in many ways.
0: I wonder if. Um, Dave Rostovich is the closest example we have to somebody who's still getting paid but almost completely ignoring all obligation uh-huh. to the industry
1: yeah 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 I don't know enough about him and I really like him and he seems he seems very genuine in that, and 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 I think that thing of kind of maybe a reluctant surf star but I'll bring with it a lot of environmental, concerns mm-hmm. which is wonderful i mean i that there's nothing that's kind of a win-win across the board it's sort of like you know i had a friend who was an agent at caa and he represented a lot of big actors and there was literally an income bracket that you entered that the moment you got that tv series or got that movie role that was going to kind of up you to this number you they carted you over to the um the sort of social concerns and the um what humanitarian aid group you want to align and 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 these you know popped uh what's the word influencers or you know famous people who are influencers would would know nothing they'd be they'd get a little briefing in their ear that they're going to be talking about humanitarian aid somewhere in africa because they were up here and people were watching them they'd be doing it but it was very much it wasn't their heart and soul wasn't in it they and but those things and i'm not dave Rust, which seems heart and soul to me so i don't mean to categorize no, him in that yeah, but yeah. but that thing those things can become a win-win so it's sort of like the bubblegum movie star that's that goes off and kisses babies and shakes hands in africa and poses for pictures may bring awareness may make someone write a big check that's a good that's only a good thing to my mind um but they but they might be concerned about you know they might be their head may, their heart, head and heart may not be in it, but they're doing it, and they're they're kind of being these puppets for it, and that's a that's a good thing. Similarly, I guess, being a great pro surfer and maybe bring awareness to things is a, is a useful cause.
0: How did you feel about Dane Reynolds Chapter Eleven? Um, I know Kelly publicly criticized Dane about um, just kind of talking poorly about his relationship with Quicksilver. Uh-huh. Just like look, Kelly's stance was like look. Maybe you had a bad falling out, but they did provide you a pretty amazing lifestyle for a period of time, and you did accept that and did what they asked during that time. So you should always be reverent of that relationship. Yeah. Um, do you have an opinion on
1: how Dane handled that? You know, I didn't watch that movie to be oh, honest. Really? Yeah. I mean, I watched. You parts missed of it. it. dude. I it missed... was so good. No, I read. I I, I I know it seemed really good, and and I started watching it, and somehow it got turned off. Like I. I can't remember. I didn't get the full download, but I didn't, I didn't get to watch it all the way through, but I felt like I got the gist of it, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, I mean, I, I guess I like, I I do know Dane and I do really, really like him, but there's the Dane that I've had beers with. And then there's the Dane as, you know, what he represents in the surf world. And in many ways, it's almost like he he almost becomes a sort of lightning rod or, you know, he's a great kind of launch point for, um, Debates like like what we're talking things we're talking about right now in terms of what he means to the world. Um, it is odd. I mean, I, I have to say it's it's sort of odd to the thing of wanting to kind of be left alone or get out of the media's eye, but then be doing things that put you right back in the media's eye. Seem like a strange thing. But and I don't. I think Dane's just a great surfer and he's just having fun making things and that mm-hmm. and 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 I so I say that with total respect for him personally. But if you if you observe it, it, there, it, he 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 makes me think about the the very things we just talked about, which is um, can you kind of exist as a great surfer that the public wants to watch and maintain a kind of purity and not be. It once the, once the cameras are turned towards you, it starts to affect your behavior. And and so no move is pure anymore. And and, and you, and you can't kind of can't even get out of that thing, you know?
0: Well, it seems that his approach has been to try to control it, you know, just Uh like, let me be the one who films edits, puts things out there. Yeah. I think he makes an effort to like, not be filmed by other people on the beach who then will put out their own version of the edit. Yeah. Um, so he's trying to wrench the con- the conversation back into his own court, Yep. which, you know, that's one tactic and I admire the way that he's done it. I certainly like the things that he puts out, but it's just, it's waged too much pressure for one person to really carry, you know, like we, yeah. we as fans, he is the lightning rod and we ask for his opinion on things and we expect him to respond to certain things. And yeah. I really appreciate his candor, I think, in explaining what happened with that Quicksilver fallout Mm -hmm. with the chapter 11 piece Uh um, because I had heard a lot of it secondhand and even his version is only his version it's not necessarily 100% truth but I appreciated him finally speaking up about it so
1: yeah yeah but I can
0: also criticize a lot of the part of it too you know
1: (laughs) right right yeah it's interesting I mean the one thing that I see now and having been in 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 the surfing world for many many years you know when I think we or or and I don't mean you and me specifically but but fan great fans of surfing. When someone surfs incredibly well, we we kind of start drinking the Kool-Aid totally. in ways that um we lose check we we don't check anymore. Um and I remember you know, I mean I grew up in the era of Tom Curran and and I love Tom Curran. I have tremendous respect for Tom Curran. That being said, he would win a contest, he would give a speech He'd stutter. He would, he would really mumble. He would never really say anything. And we would parse his words as if it were Bob Dylan. Yeah. You know. I mean, he was such a god to everyone. It was sort of like, he's a genius. And we have to, what was the innuendo that he had there? And, and, I, and not just Tom, but I mean, I watched that with a lot of guys. And then, and then cut to you know, 25 years later, these are just normal guys who had an amazing skill on a surfboard, but they're also just people trying to get by in the world. So I, I kind of look at a lot of the the surfers in their prime right now um, with a, with that grain of salt or with that thing of their real gift is what they do on a surfboard. And beyond that, to expect that, I mean, this is in many ways, this is a whole, this is a topic I'm happy to talk about. I realized I wanted to do a lot more than just surf journalism when I went to interview the hottest 18, 19-year-old surfer of the time in the 90s and and sat you know for three hours in a conversation and drove home going i'm learning absolutely nothing and i love to watch that guy surf yeah. but i don't ever want to sit down and talk to him for three more hours because that was the boringest conversation i had he has nothing to say this this i won't mention name sure but this guy's gift is what he does on a surfboard so i would rather watch a video clip of them i don't need to read the interview i don't they don't they're they're not great that's not a great mind and i, I don't when i say they i'm not generalizing there are some great minds in surfing but i think sometimes the better the surfer the more we kind of hang on everything they're doing and and that goes for things their extracurriculars be it what they be it stuff they make um they it's 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 sometimes hard to separate um our love of the surfing and we just it becomes a sort of adulation that can get out of control.
0: Yeah, and I think Kelly's done such a phenomenal job being an ambassador. Yeah. Like, who's going to follow his sh- shoes? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if John John is the next, John John, as much as I love him as a surfer, never said anything profound that I've ever heard. Yeah. Not in a magazine, not in a post he'd interview, nothing. So, and no... I'm not even bad mouthing John. It's just Kelly's such a great, great ambassador. That yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. Follow
1: those no, for sure. I mean, that's the one thing that, that I that I guess I really like about John. John is he's not trying to do any of that, and it's he really almost isn't. it's almost as if he he his, he he sort of just lets his surfing. I mean, it's almost a Hawaiian thing because I think Hawaii. It's funny when I was growing up surfing, I would watch like a a drop in at Malibu and there would be a a verbal altercation it would almost be a battle of wits it would be sort of who could say the most clever thing and sometimes it never turned into anything physical but it was just like what witty clever thing you could say and it was great banter I'd go to Hawaii and it'd be Rocky Point and someone drops in and it would be no words exchanged it would be either a punch or a slap and I think there's that more taciturn you know let your let your let your skill do the talking but don't like the verbal talking is not the thing and and John John I think in many ways sort of comes from that
0: Gisela and I spend our Christmas holidays in Brazil no one tells you this at least no one told me you get married and your spouse's family becomes your family even if they did it'd probably be too late anyways by the time your future spouse invites you to meet the family, the hooks are already in. Gisella's mom was classy and old-worldly in her moral correctness. Her two sisters, one an anthropologist and the other an employee for the city of Sao Paulo's cultural affairs, were a joy. We had Sunday lunches that carried on for hours. Leonard Cohen on the stereo, the high-rises out of the dining room window bathed in an orange glow. The Mata family was smart and funny. We shared a skewed take on the world. One New Year's morning, Gisella and I packed our gear and walked a long way south to an empty cove. We read on the sand, we sipped beer, we spoke in married couple shorthand that at the time felt monotonous but now seems warm and comfy. We fell asleep holding hands in the sweltering sun. When I woke, I saw a little left bouncing off a round rock. I grabbed my fins and went for a splash. I rode the turquoise wedges shaping my body to their curves, practicing oneness I felt light and fish-like. At one point, I looked in and saw Gisela, feline on her side, blue bikini, head in book. Behind her was jungle as far as the eye could see. It was our beach. We were like kids in the Blue Lagoon. A sense of discovering each other, the anxieties of our New York lives a million miles away. For those minutes, my life was as perfect as I can remember. that to segue into westerly windina and peter druin oh yeah first peter druin then westerly and now peter druin
1: yes right yes yes
0: so i'm gonna give the shortest thumbnail ever and you have um i want you to talk about this as much as you want i sure. just also feel like you've talked about it at length in a lot of other platforms so we can spend as much or as little time as you want mm-hmm. basically peter druin super iconic important surfer um Australian surfer from the 60s era, right? Yep, 60s, 60s and 70s, yeah. Who in recent years transitioned into a female, Westerly Wendina, and actually had sexual reassignment surgery through the process. Yep. Was that in Cambodia It was in
1: uh, Bangkok, Thailand, and it was 2012. Okay. Yeah. And you started out by writing a story for the Surfer's
0: Journal, ended up becoming a book and now a documentary that's yet to be released. The Mm -hmm. book is Becoming Westerly and um, finished the book. Basically with West westerly still being westerly, Mm -hmm. but subsequently since then has actually transitioned back into living as Peter Druin. Yeah. Although she did have the reassignment surgery previously. Yep. So, um, fascinating figure. Yeah. I would, one interesting thing to me about it was like maybe the initial conceit of an article or the book or just the way a lot of people interpreted it was whether or not Peter Druin was pulling a fast one on everyone because he was an actor and he was the consummate showman. There was always a question of, this is just a ruse. And as soon as we all buy into it, he's going to point the finger and laugh at us and go, ha, I'll pull the fast one on you. I'll be honest. I didn't necessarily ever understand that question. Mm -hmm. Whereas I just felt like westerly still wants is desperate for attention Mm -hmm. westerly is still a show person Mm -hmm. and so for me reading it and kind of just watching the thing from the sideline i always felt like it doesn't matter whether or not this is a ruse or not Uh he she is clearly desperate for attention Mm -hmm. and whether or not this is strictly for attention or it's a sincere that peter always felt like he was a woman yeah um there's really no difference to me like that she is just Somebody trying to suss things out and feel validated
1: by others. Yeah. And no, that I think what you say is is pretty spot on. I mean, I I think the thing that I was interested in, in truth, I got the assignment from to write about to write a profile of Westerly for the Surface Journal right after Peter had become Westerly, and he and and she had come out on national television in Australia and made it this big splash. The media jumped all over it and. And Scott Hewlett, editor of the Surfer's Journal, I was going to Australia, and I said, any pieces that would be good? And he said, well, if you can get Druin to talk, that would be a great profile. So I called Westerly, and she was a little suspicious of the surf media because they turned her into a punchline. they made it just a joke. No No one really took it seriously. And she agreed to meet. We had lunch. Um, and she was so over the top. I mean, it was almost as if she had this prepared speech of the, uh, this almost fairy tale genie out of a bottle, um, phoenix rising from the ashes kind of thing of how Westerly emerged. And I was, I was all for it, and and I didn't question it. I guess the thing for me was. Um, I had my own ax to grind because as we talked about earlier, I just found the surfing world to be narrow. And I thought it was unfortunate that there's not a lot of room to move in, in terms of identity. I think originally surfing was the opposite of that. I think yeah. in, in the surfing world that I came to that, that felt so good to me that became my home was, Oh, all these eccentric characters and all these, you know, really wild minds at work. And, and and it slowly, with the commercialization came homogenization. And with that became no room for anyone that's sort of not within this sort of sportsman-like way. Um, so when Wesley came out and there was homophobia and there were and there were the naysayers, I thought, I'm going to get right behind this person. But there was the tension. Is this for real or not? And I spoke with all of Peter Druin's peers, uh, not all, but I spoke to many of them. And they, uh, they were pretty much... Across the board, suspicious, you know, um,
0: I guess, again, my question is suspicious of what
1: just suspicious that this may be a ruse. There was, this, but I mean, she's
0: living as a woman. So where's the ruse? But you the, know?
1: Here's the ruse. The, and this was there was one person who said this is um, it was kind of a put your money where your mouth are. The, the quote, unquote, until he gets his dick cut off. I, I won't believe in it. Got that it. will be for real. So it was this weird thing of prove it, you know, which is a really weird thing to be to be kind of immersed in in, in writing and following the story. Um and that, you know, there were these there were these things that over time would come become very clear, sort of questions in my head, and one of them was, how far would one go for a standing ovation? Because Peter was such a um attention seeker and and got the attention. So so used to it was kind of the child actor syndrome. It was sort of in in his Teens and twenties, he was so charismatic, so handsome, so such a performer, so great. You know, a lot of girls, a lot of attention, all that stuff coming, and then it it's, it started to dwindle until it probably just disappeared. And he was a middle aged man living behind Surfers Paradise in Australia, and no one's no one's calling to interview him anymore. So when I entered the when I entered the story, I think she loved that I was very earnest and willing to listen and and. Um, I, I followed her for several years um, and we went to Bangkok and the surgery happened and all that. So, but, but, but what's interesting is there was the, the, my, I, I, gr- I guess I grew a lot or learned a lot along the way because at first it was, and I, I didn't necessarily think this, but that whole put your money where your mouth is if you really are a woman until you're, until you commit to irreversible gender reassignment surgery. For all we know, you're just sort of a you know you're just putting on the woman's clothes to get to, to, to and and this could all just be bullshit. It's almost like a um, a character you're inhabiting. And once the surgery happened, it was okay. There's she's she's had the surgery, um, but. I still it it still became a question of sort of how well do we know ourselves because where is that line between performance and in our and acting and the the masks we put on for one another and who we are when we're alone behind closed doors and um, and you know the desire for acceptance and validation and uh, and (coughs) applause Mm -hmm. was so strong that um, while. and I have no, there's nothing, I have no conclusive any, I, I'm, st- I'm still learning the story. I, I, I kind of, I feel like my, what I've hopefully done uh, is, is sort of midwifed along a story for yeah. you to decide. Um, but the questions that, the questions were fascinating questions because they were the biggest questions of identity that I've ever really grappled with. And it was, um, you know, just how well do we know ourselves? And if you're someone who, who is, who does need attention and adulation, someone who's been famous, you um, there's a sort of curse that comes with it um, of wanting it back. And, and I felt like that's what I was watching happening in real time. So there was this thing of, you know, is the, is the Westerly character related to a gender dysphoria that goes way, way back? Or is it something that somehow became integrated into the, the packaging of a new self, you know?
0: Right. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. And for me, whether it's a quote-unquote ruse is no less interesting than if it was quote-unquote sincere. Yeah. You know? Like, those things are equally interesting. The motivating factors between either of those options are equally interesting to me.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, What are Peter's plans now? Is he going to get a second surgery? Or, like, where does he go from here?
1: I should know this, but I don't. But I don't think you can go back. Um, Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. Um, But I think... I saw Peter a year ago and he was in great, great form. Um, He was, you know, I'd heard that she had gone back to being he and we went over for the documentary to to speak with him and he was very much open to it. And when we arrived, immediately he wanted to, he had written a script and he had a character for me to be in it and he wanted to film the sketch. It was like a sketch comedy piece. And so I, you know, I went, There was this heavy thing of going back to being peter which was huge um but the first order of business was we got to we got to shoot this we got to shoot this sketch i've written and we went and we shot it and i had lines and i was given a script that was written longhand it was fantastic but i realized that peter is such an actor i mean it's there was, a, there was a director, who, when Peter was an actor in the 80s, there was a director who we interviewed for the documentary, and um, he said um, Peter could play a good uh, used car salesman, could be a good this, and he went on this whole list of all the characters Peter had played in various movies and television and TV commercials. And he said, but where he had problems was playing himself. And that was kind of what i got when i encountered let's go into make believe it was sort of make believe is way safer than the really sincere but then he did get really really deep and and i won't give too much away because the documentary is going to be coming out very soon but i mean it was a fantastic journey and i have so much respect for peter i really do we've had this we've had such a um up and down relationship but i've you know i've learned more from this person i mean i've learned so much from this person so
0: when you saw him a year ago, did he express any regret about having had the surgery?
1: No. Okay. No. No. Did I you mean, ask him that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, this, I'm, I don't want to give too much away because the film explores all this stuff. But it was, it was, there was, it wasn't regret.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, you spent ten years on this story in various forms. Mm.
1: Eight yeah eight years 2009 when
0: i started yeah okay yeah um i could see the initial the kind of obviously it's a sensational story so i see that fascination Mm -hmm. but why so much time and what was your fascination with it really it's a long time to spend.
1: It really is. But in the beginning, it was here's you know having written so many profiles of, of of great surfers, but they almost become they almost become repetition repetitious. They're the same sort of story. I mean, I guess the road to becoming a great surfer is often much the same. It's a lot of time in the water, however you do that. But um, you know, most of the character, most of the people who are in the surf magazines are great surfers, and so with with the um, in the process of becoming a great surfer, you give up a lot of other things, and so and it, again, it, it's, it's a sort of narrow path that gets you there. I mean, if you look, you could take all the surfers from all the various countries around the world who are on the world tour, and if you went back, I mean, sure, you have some of the Brazilian kids who come from impoverished backgrounds and they lived in favelas, and you have some wealthy kids, or whatever. But ultimately, it's just it's it's they're all, they, they're very similar. There's not any radical divergences. Um, when I wrote about Peter, I suddenly it was so great because i'd written about a lot of surfers and here's this guy who's who's or westerly her story was so so different um so i was fascinated and and i had the surfers journal i wrote the piece and it got a lot of good response i wrote various other uh profiles for different magazines um and then we started working on a documentary but we kind of knew that it was going to take some time Alan White, who's a director, and I teamed up, and we we, we she wanted her gender reassignment, um, and that was sort of part of what she announced to us. We were open to following her with whatever she was going to be doing. That was it, the 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 film did not hinge upon her getting gender reassignment surgery, but that was clearly everything she wanted, and she talked about it nonstop. And that was still a year and a half off from the time we started. And then there was the kind of um, acquiescing back to or or you know sinking into what it is to be female it's not it's not sort of like you end. you have she walks out of the surgery room i've got a vagina and it's done you know it's sort of well, okay well what does it feel like now to be living as a woman in what she called her completion so so while it has been a long long time i mean there was no we knew that going into it that it was going to be it wasn't it wasn't simply going and film her and have her talk about who peter was because that wasn't the point it was happening in real time and it was happening over years um, and right as we were almost finished with the film, and we were we were really trying to get the end right, it was a, it was a really odd thing because she'd been living for two years as two and a half years, I guess, as Westerly post surgery, and we were editing, editing, editing. And granted, the, our team, the crew, we've been that's been making the film have all have a, other things that we're doing as well, so it's not like we're solely doing this every single day. But then finally, I got word that Wesley had gone back to being Peter. And so that meant, um, on the one hand, okay, now we have an ending for this film. This is an ending none no one ever imagined, and B, we've got to go back film it and then figure out how to edit it with that. So it was tricky. I mean, interestingly, I've learned this. Um, I think documentaries are really these this type of documentary, something that's unfolding as you go, it's is right. a really really difficult thing. Because for instance, if you write a screenplay, you start you you begin the first act or the first scene. You you are you. Once you've written that script, you know that there's the scene one, and you go shoot it, and you do 12 takes of it, and you might use one of those takes, or you might um, meld together a few of those takes, but you know where that fits in the timeline of the film. With the documentary, we just did this kind of grab-and-go, let's just shoot and get about 100 hours of film, and we don't even know where we're going to start
0: yeah and there's other documentaries too they're just retelling a historical event and there is a beginning middle and end it's a lot easier to shoot exactly this is yeah no, this is but this is also gold man this no. is like and i love that the ending of the documentary is different than the ending of the book yeah you know yeah that yeah, final yeah. chapter yeah it's pretty fascinating
1: yeah it's been I, I i would not be in it i would not have been in it so long if i wasn't learning and, yeah and it and most of all just asking questions because i think that's we called um, Dane. I, I we I, I called Dane Reynolds a sort of lightning rod for th- yeah. for things to think about within the surfing milieu. Well, with Westerly, it's this lightning rod. With Peter now, it's this lightning rod for all these big questions about cool. identity. And I've never. Um, I mean, I just the, the the questions that literally formed in my head from spending time with her, him, her, or her, her, and then him. I didn't know Peter. I only met her Westerly, but her and him later um, were questions with huge themes, you know, big, big questions. And I've always wanted that. I mean, that was, I think, I felt limited by surfing because I felt it's not as if surf magazines are a typical place to be going into. First of all, you don't even have the space in the magazines yeah. to do it, nor do people even want that. There's a certain sort of, let, let's stay on the surface of things here to some degree. And I that's agree. arguable. But for the most part, that's what it is. And Westerly and Peter provided me uh, something that was you know worthy of of all that all those years
0: you and i have touched on sincerity as being important mm-hmm. um and i know you've spent so much time i feel like you've even talked about westerly saying that she's become a good friend over the course of this process mm-hmm. if there's always this underlying question of whether or not what you're documenting is a ruse mm-hmm. I mean, can you refer to her as a friend? Do you feel like she is a true friend? If you know, you're not even certain that the basis of the friendship is truth.
1: That's a really good question. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, I, there was a time when I would call us friends. I would say less so now. It's not as it's not as if we had any kind of falling out or anything like that. But um, it's there, there's there's friend as in Someone you go to dinner with, someone you have camaraderie with, um, and that are easy to hang out with, Westerly and Peter have not, never been easy to hang out with. But we've had some interesting conversation. There's a, there's a sort of prodding. There's this sort of um, being challenged constantly by her and him that, uh, I mean, I genuinely care about him and I wish him all only good things, um, but I don't know if it's friendship now. It's... It, and I speak of it almost in the past tense only because we're pretty much finished with the film and where it goes from here is another story. I mean, a lot of the impetus for us to spend time together was in the documenting of of all of it. Now that the documenting of it is over, it, it might be something else. But I do, I mean, Peter is an incredible person, <laughs> really great person to, for the podcast. I mean, <laughs> truly. You, yeah, the, the, it's, would be... it, it's an incredible mind and, and, um, and there's a lot there's a lot there that comes up in the process of hanging out with her or him.
0: Did you feel as though she was being
1: sincere with you when you were engaged in the process? It would go back and forth. I mean, there was a lot of time where it was where it really felt like it was put on for the cameras. Yeah. Um, or if I had the my uh, audio recorder on, it was sort of very conscious of, okay, we're now doing yeah. the thing. And then there would be a lot of stuff that would happen off camera. But we spent a lot, a lot of time together. So there were times... Almost like a, um, you know, interrogation process where you exhaust the person so much that they can't, they don't have the energy to be self-conscious anymore. So they're just kind of, you're getting the real self. We definitely got to those places. Um, So it was, it was really both. But she and he, you know, there, there, there's, um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of performing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is the film locked off? Is it? Almost. Okay. Days away from it. Okay, good. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Do you have a game plan or a timeline for a release? Not
1: as of now. We still have to go through post, so we still will probably be working on it till the end of the year. But I think, um, you know, as soon as we do that, we're going to figure out the next approach. Cool. Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm excited.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Um, let's talk about surf film, actually, in general. Uh, uh-huh. When was what was the last surf film you watched actually from beginning to end?
1: Wow, that's a good question. I can't even think of it.
0: Isn't it weird?
1: Yeah, I
0: mean, for something that's been so influential in our lives, yeah. like it's weird how it's gone away.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> The other side of it, though, is that there are so many, I mean, there's a kind of glut of content in the world in general, and in surfing in particular, but there's just, it's, it's and the way in which we get, you know, I'll get a link or I'll see something, there will be something available, and it's really easy to do, it's that kind of, Fractured attention, you know, ADD thing where you where you watch a little bit of something, but you don't watch all that As I was saying with Dane Reynolds film, you know, I watched some of it I didn't I didn't watch this. I didn't stop and watch the thing in its entirety um, I
0: agree with you that that does happen, but at the same time I still watched a new I watched a full-length film last night mm-hmm. So I devote time and attention to watching film. Yeah, but not surf.
1: Yeah, you no, know? no, no. Well, that's true
0: so it's like my i do have the attention span it's for really good content and yeah. so my question is just you know is there good surf content out there really or is the value of the content watching the raddest air well i could do that on instagram so there's no need to watch it or if the value in surf stories is better served in print then i'll get the stories there yeah i'm just not sure that the surf filmmakers are really executing no to I, the full. I think
1: that's probably pretty fair you know um the, there, it, it, it's, I mean, this. it's such a, I'm stating the obvious here, but the whole like comparison to porn, you know, the thing of just watching a lot of action, uh, what you said is true. I mean, you can get, I can get little clips online all the time and I do, and I do watch them. I mean, when I see something of a great, you know, a swell comes and there's this great session that happened in the Northeast somewhere with some surfer or like I click on it, and watch six minutes of it or whatever, but to sit for, you know, an hour or 90 minutes watching something, um, they're just there are not a lot of really story driven ones. I mean they're That's just the kind thing. of montages. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The one, the one that looked really interesting to me that I saw parts of but not all was is it given? The, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that looked that was an odyssey that had a lot going and and it seemed like something that you would it'd be worth going from all the way through. Whereas a lot of the other ones it's just a bunch of you know kind of like the, the you know it started I I mean I remember a lot of skate films have this but it, where it was each person has a part and it's yeah. it's just a showcase it's like here's all my here's all my best tricks kind of thing to with us with a particular song as soundtrack and there you go but it that doesn't require you to focus um, 60 minutes or more of attention right
0: I'll send you my review on given okay <laughs> <laughs> I was not psyched on it uh-huh. it had a lot of potential and it was like beautiful to look at and Uh stuff, but uh kind of lost its way. Right. Um, So what what surf media do you actually look forward to then? If you only read the Surfer's Journal and you're not watching full-length films, um, are there any websites you're clicking on every day? Anybody's edits who drop that you kind of stop what you're doing to make sure
1: that you watch? Dana will always watch. You will? Yeah. And John John. Yeah. 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 Surf surf websites? uh, Surfline I look at. I mean, it's, it's Surfline, it's interesting because I go to Surfline mainly to check the swell tide mm-hmm. cams, and then inevitably there will be something in my, I'll, I'll kind of be scanning and there'll be something I'll grab onto and check sure. it out. Yeah. yeah. But the Surfer's Journal, I like, and I, I think in many ways it really is. It's the, um, it's print media doing its thing, doing its best work. I mean, it's so beautiful. Um, to my mind, it feels, there's a sort of timeless quality to it. And it is... Um, where, where the, a lot of the other stuff is literally at my computer, which I'm on way too much anyway. And yeah. it's the kind of glowing screen versus sort of sitting back with the tactile experience of flipping pages, which I'll do with books and maga- you know, other magazines, not surf magazines, but the Surface Journal, very happily I'll do that with.
0: So what other magazines are you invested in?
1: I read The New Yorker. Um, I read newspapers. I have The New York Times in the corner, although I don't get it every Sunday. Do you make it through The New Yorker every week? not even close yeah yeah, yeah. no i find what i find what's interesting to me and that's it i mean i really don't feel like i have nearly i don't get i'm saying what probably everyone says but i don't feel like i have nearly enough time and i don't even have children you know but but it's um i wish i could be reading more and i real i do i really felt there was a time when i was living in new york and i and i did a kind of assessment of myself as a writer and i thought i need to be reading much much more and there's so much i've missed and i was it was almost like the overcompensation of someone who skipped out on college to go traveling around and now what do i need to do to sort of edify and fortify myself and it was read a lot of great literature so i bought a lot of books at the strand bookstore in in the village and uh and i would I would sit every evening and read 50, it was 50 pages a day. I made a goal for myself. It's kind of weird to be doing that. You know, that's another thing. It's, it's, it, that was almost a, putting my competitive surfer mentality onto reading or in onto writing. But, um, but that thing of, of making it a goal to take it all in. And, um, and I was really good at that then, but no, now I feel more scatterbrained. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, do you, how closely do you follow the WSL?
1: Not really closely. Really? Yeah, I mean, I'll turn it. I'll tune into it. I don't. I don't have the app on my phone. I don't get alerts. Um, if one of my friends mentions something exciting happening, have you seen what's going on at Chopu? Have you seen what's going on in Fiji? I will tune in. Um, but yeah, I, I get busy, and and I get and I'm concentrated on my own work, and it does take a lot of. T- I mean, I do. I work a ton. Yeah. Um, and and it just. It's kind of like how many, maybe my bandwidth, is, it's, my bandwidth is not as wide as I want it to be. Yeah. I wish I could kind of be doing all these things, but, but I, I start working on something and I want to stay in that and, mm-hmm. and not be all over the place.
0: Which um, stories in surfing would you like to tell? Like, I mean, obviously you got to prioritize. You only have so much time to write, but mm-hmm. like, are there any stories that you feel haven't been told
1: at all or maybe haven't been thoroughly enough told Hmm, god that's interesting um nothing comes to the top of my head i mean i think the thing that i'm i'm interested in more fiction i think okay there's not a store it's not there's not some surf scene across the world there's not a particular surfer that i would really like to get to know and get in their head there's i there's not i Nothing right now, and it may be because I'm not paying close enough attention. I mean, if I were into it more, I might be more fascinated. But um, when I, th- I think of it, I think more, I guess, in fictional terms, yeah. whether it's writing a novel or whether it's writing a screenplay, but it would be taking something that I know well or taking something that um, that, you know, some piece of history and... And then being free to embellish it and do it less, less with the journalistic approach where I've got to do all this research and get all these quotes and talk to all these people and, and have, there are great things about that, but then I, I've also learned a lot of, there are a lot of limitations there too. So the idea of being able to kind of invent off of that, that's what appeals to me most.
0: Are there any really kind of A plus examples of surf fiction that you could point out for listeners to read?
1: Cam Nunn is really, really great. I mean, all of his books are great. Tapping the Source is great. Dogs okay. of Winter, Tijuana Straits. Um, yeah, and, and 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 again, it becomes that it's that thing of they're really more character-driven than they are about surfing. I mean, there are great surf scenes and you're in the water and you get all that. Yeah. Um, it's, I know it's a nonfiction book, but William Finnegan's Barbarian Days is fantastic. And it reads like a great novel, I think. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: I had him on the podcast when he first published it. A lot of listeners have read that.
1: Uh Yeah. Yeah. It's a great example. Yeah. What about you? Are there, is there any fiction? No,
0: not necessarily. I, Uh and to be honest, I don't read a lot of fiction Mm -hmm. at this
1: stage in my life right now. Currently, it's just not where I'm at. Am I allowed to ask you what you read mag- with surf mags websites and all that kind of, of stuff? Of course you are.
0: Um, yeah. I don't really read the magazines that much anymore. I will Surfer's journal comes to the office. So I'll definitely thumb through that to find an article that's of interest. And I'll sit down with that. I try to read the New Yorker. Um, mm-hmm. I, I subscribe to it. So like I'll cherry pick articles in there as well. Yep. And I always read the film reviews in there. Yep. I'm always interested in, Yeah. Um, in terms of websites beach grit stab Mm -hmm. surf line mainly for the surf cams though not for any of the other content yeah um i will tell you kind of to get to the heart of your question where i think the most interesting conversations are happening in surfing is in the comments section yeah i know what you mean i mean truly like whatever they write on beach grit is kind of like eh, whatever i take it or leave it and then i scroll down and read everybody's responses sometimes i start with the comments before i even read the article that's great, just to get a gauge on actually what the vibe was in the article and um i find that to be sometimes the most informed Mm -hmm. i mean sometimes those commenters actually work in the surf industry so they Mm -hmm. do have insight yeah um but i just find that to be like the best kind of taking of the pulse of the surf culture is the comments and also on instagram in the comments sections Uh uh
1: uh-huh no that's i absolutely relate to that and i've experienced the same thing yeah
0: um kind of cycling back to instagram do you have any favorite accounts that you follow
1: Hmm. no you know and i and i'm not i'm not being coy or evasive or anything like that but i similar to um searching around on i feel like that's sort of a guilty pleasure um and i don't do i don't allow myself too much of it i post stuff and again as i told you earlier it's it's a it's a kind of swinging with two bats before i step up to the plate with the one bat to try to slam the home run which is the which is the writing i'm doing for publication I post it and it's totally selfish and I'm I'm being brutally honest. I don't look at that many other people. I I, I will allow myself three or four minutes to scroll around and if something pops up, of course I like it. So so I'm not, I don't say, I I don't, um, I do engage in the sense of liking posts, but I don't really follow. I don't really go to it. I have a kind of, um, I have a, what's the word? A, a. my relationship with it all is oh i i like this as a platform but i just don't want to spend too much time and i mean does it i'm i i'm tr- still trying to figure out what it is i was going to call it bubblegum, but i don't think it is bubblegum. and in fact i learn i do learn a lot from it and the fact that it is so so big in our lives right now it does mean something yeah. you know
0: um what's your current relationship like with surfing
1: uh i surf a fair amount um and it, it, it's good. It goes in and out. I went on a surf trip earlier this year. I went to a undisclosed location in the, in the Indian Ocean and sp- spent about two and a half weeks on a boat riding some good waves with some great surfers. And I got so into it. I mean, I was surfing three times a day. I was really connected to I had a great surfboard, a Channel Islands pod, that I 510 pod that I really love, an old board that was just beater brownish board that still goes so good and i really got i kind of got a groove that i hadn't had hadn't had in a long time and while there one wonderful wonderful experience we were parked we were moored anchored whatever it is um in the boat next to a break and it was a small island with a little right point breaking off the top and uh, i was sleeping upstairs on the boat in the open air every single night and the weather was perfect and you'd see the sky and Sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would hear the waves breaking and it would have this kind of, I was trying to figure out what it was in a kind of writerly way, like how do you write the sound of these waves? And it almost sounded like tearing paper. It was like, and, and so that was kind of the, the white noise of the evening of the night. And then all of a sudden you'd hear it a little bit louder. And then a few seconds later, the, the boat would rock a little bit more and it would have been a set. And I was thinking, I've never been so connected to surfing in such a holistic way. It's around me, around the clock. It's in my, literally in my sleep. And it was so cool. And I thought, this is so great. And and we were kind of like being very feral. You know, we were just sort of in the surf all day long, come out and eat. While there, I had this thought. I I, I was thinking, you know, I need to surf. I need to surf more. I need to build my quiver. I need more boards. I should I've always been this guy um, where I, you know, my boards would like have wax from three years old on it. And I borrowing a leash from someone and and uh wetsuits are old and all that kind of stuff like i'm not i'm not a gear guy at all i'm kind of i'm lazy about all that stuff and um and i also thought like surfing is a big part of my life and it makes me feel really really good when i go home i'm gonna really make a bigger effort to stay in it i haven't at all i've completely steered away um and i didn't for whatever reason maybe the quality of the surf maybe the crowds i don't like crowds unfortunately um and i like I like going into my head. And so I, if, if I, when I'm, it's so crowded in in LA County to surf. And so there, it becomes, it becomes an exchange of energy with other people. And so there, and, and then my ego, of course, comes into it. And so it's sort of like, you know, I was on the inside, but that fucker just paddled my inside and took that wave. And that should have been my wave. And then that pisses me off. And then, you know, oh, I had a session not long ago where an, an utter cuckoo could barely paddle, dropped in on a beautiful wave in front of me and just, you know, um destroyed a, a, a wave that I feel like I've been surfing 40 years to, to, to earn and barely apologized, you know, and, and I just, it was, it's really, it's tricky. It's, it, it, it's, I realize this and I don't want to be bitter and I don't want to fall into that, but if you've been surfing more than three decades and it's probably whatever time in history, you know, this is, it's not unique to this time in history. It's sort of. Mickey Dora talked about Gidget ruining surfing, right? It's sort of, I think it's there's, there's, there's the, 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 the danger of the, of, the, of the aging surfer, the surfer who's, who's got a few decades under the belt is that you can start to, um, it does get more crowded. It disappoints. It's not giving you the same experiences as it did in your prime or when it was less crowded. And then you just become a source of anger. So there are times when I go, I'm not even having that much fun. Right. It's sort of bumming me out. I ride a bicycle a lot. And I ride really, I have, and I like my surfboards, I got a beater mountain bike that's all rusted, but I go for these rides. And the cool thing about that, there are not a lot of cars here where I live and there are nice hills and there's beautiful views. And I ride along the beach and in some weird way, it's like, that's kind of become this experience that I'm trying to get from surfing, um, where I get to get in my head, I get to kind of think about the stuff that I'm working on and, um, It's more of a meditative space. It's hard to find the meditative space in Southern California at this time.
0: I fully, fully relate to all of those things. And I feel like we've seen that in Kelly's career as well, where, you know, he's fallen down the rankings before he got injured this year. He was like 20th or something. Mm -hmm. However... When he shows up at Chopu and it's eight to ten feet, he wins the event. Yeah. So it's like you can really only get him motivated when the waves are pumping. Yeah. He didn't even show up at Brazil this year, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. pre-injury because why would you? Yeah. Um. And so I feel that way too, where I've started to question, um, my own surf ability. You know, after surfing three hundred days in Orange County of crappy waves, I'm thinking, man, I kind of suck at surfing. And then the waves got good two weeks ago for a week straight, head high offshore winds. And all of a sudden I was ripping. Yeah. I was like, Oh no, I haven't gotten worse. It's just, I really need good waves to even be motivated to try. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it's, I mean, surfing and I've done yoga and I do meditation and, and I think surfing is very, that kind of spiritual practice realm. It is that. and, and, I sometimes, so my relationship is kind of this fraught and loaded thing where, yeah. you know, I look at people who just, they surf, it's just by their reflexive thing. Like I've been doing this and I just, that's what I do on Saturday morning or whenever I ever. a whenever there's a swell, I'm on it. And, and I definitely have moments where I just question, is that really what, like maybe my best surfing days are behind me. Maybe, maybe I hit, um, you know, by getting to go around the world and be, and be one of, you know, being, being a good good surfer of that period and riding the best waves. Um, there's, there's almost a thing of like, maybe quit while your head and just find other things that are interesting. But I also know that it is so much a part of my feeling, literally, you know, the, the sense of feeling good in my body. Um, and it's kind of the combination of the shoulders from paddling that workout there, the dancing across waves, the hip gyrations, the cleaning of your head from the water, yeah, the staring exactly. at the horizon line, all those things, nothing else gives me that and makes me feel as good. Um, but there's a lot of it where it's like, it feels like masturbation, you know, it's just sort of, you're just doing this thing and it's not, it's you, it's not going anywhere. I have Dave
0: Parmenter um, as a regular guest on the show. Uh And he talks about what you and I are talking about is just playing in the shore break because now he's doing open ocean paddling, not only on prone boards, but, uh, canoe races as well, like single man canoes. Mm -hmm. And he talks about everything that he's ever learned from surfing being he needs all of that learning and information to do what he's doing out in these canoes times a hundred he needs Uh way more information because you're riding swells. Yeah. And he's like, you're, you catch a swell and then you spot one up ahead and you kind of use the one you're on to project you into the next one. Yeah. And he's like, there's so much going on mentally for me. I'm drawing from all my surf experience, but it's the ocean is so much vaster yeah. than the shore break that yeah. we're used to riding. Yeah. And so that's opened my eyes. And I actually ordered a 12 foot paddle board from him. Oh, that's great. Um, to help kind of make that transition because I felt a lot of the same things you did. And it's like, I don't want to get out of the ocean. But there's ways to, you know, still experience it.
1: Yeah. No, you know? I think that's I think that's a really good thing to do. And I, I admire that. Uh, there was a uh, a documentary recently about Wayne Lynch. And, and the, oh, yeah the, the the, yeah. the Patagonia one? Yeah, the Patagonia one. And it ends with him. He has a sailboat, a catamaran, and he's really into that. And it's almost as if this is the evolution of surfing. This is sort of you go, like what Dave was saying, you know, you're going beyond the shore break and you go out there. And I thought, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, and it also makes sense... Because there is, I don't know. I guess, and probably far more so, a guy like Wayne Lynch would know this than me. But when you when you when you've been a good surfer, there it's it really is hard to just totally separate your ego yeah. from it. And when your timing is off, and your fitness is not what, and you're getting tired easily, um, and people are surfing circles around you, and you used to be the kind of alpha in the lineup. It is. it's it's hard and i wonder i It's just sort of i wonder if it's the diminishing returns if it's only going to just kind of increasingly get worse and i'm going to be 60 and it's good it, so so finding ways to keep that and i do absolutely think there's the kind of negative ions or whatever it is that the ocean gives us and all those things that are so that are like the dopamine receptors and i mean that is such a valuable thing and just the why wa- i mean i just being in waters nice. i said but i body surf um i got really into body surfing recently and and that felt Two, that felt like an extension of surfing. In, right. in fact, in my kind of romanticized way, I was thinking it's like it's like shedding shedding the tools and just going, you know, you don't need this. It's like training wheels to a bike. It's like get rid of the surfboard and just go out with a pair of swim fins.
0: the text message came at 6.51 a.m. Jamie, call me now. It was Gisela's best friend, Fernanda, who lived in Rio. I dialed her number. She answered in hysterics. She's gone, Jamie. Gisella died. She's gone. Through her sobs, I could make out that Gisela had been hit by a bus on her bicycle. She was rushed to the hospital. They had misdiagnosed her injury as a broken hip. She was bleeding internally. By the time the doctors realized this, it was too late. Months passed deep-rooted self-pity and pessimism set in. The skipping record player on a loop in my head went something like fuck this life. Games rigged. I want out. The darkness took over everything. I never consciously plotted my suicide. But had a gunman jumped me in a dark alleyway, had a large shark popped up from the depths while I was straddling my board at Zuma, they'd have gotten no resistance from me. Which brings us back to the ocean. I had moved to New York to get away from surfing. It followed me. Not so much the actual act of riding waves, but the culture, the stories. Surfing sat at the front of my thoughts, but my skills on the board suffered big time. I became out of shape, my timing departed, my confidence was shot. In the wake of Gisela's death, I surrendered on some level, and my inner compass naturally took me to surfing. It was part going back to what I know, reconnecting with my past. On a neuroscience level, I'm sure there was negative ions of the sea spurting dopamine lifting me from my blackness. On a cellular level, it was part those curling toes and bouncing knees and windmilling arms. At 47 years old, freshly widowed, surfing saved my life the way it did when I was a confused, angst-ridden teenager. We hear about a lot of art coming from places of pain how have those losses number 1 spurred your writing forward and then mm-hmm. number 2 you mentioned yoga and meditation mm-hmm. how have you learned to process
1: the trauma uh uh-huh. you know my brother when my brother died he'd been he'd been an addict for a lot of years and it was it was not totally unexpected and okay. it, and at that time I was in my teens and 20s so it was it was um i was kind of too young to make a lot of sense of it and i'm still making sense of it you know it was it was, a, it was really difficult but my my wife died uh four years ago and and that was unexpected and and that that took me down like nothing's ever taken me down um i was living in new york and when it happened she was in rio de janeiro she was from brazil but i instant i my dear sister who's i'm really close with came over and said you know you should come home it's like you got to be with your family so i moved back to la and I slept on her sofa for a long time, and and uh, and in trying to kind of find my way forward, one of the things that happened, which was really interesting, is I started surfing again. When I was in New York, I didn't surf that much, and I really was, and um, I was like a surfer in denial or a lap surfer or something. It was I did it a little bit, but it was now I never I really kind of put it aside. And uh, when I came back here, pretty much nothing felt good, but the one thing that did feel okay was going surfing, and it was it was it was almost. Almost like when I started surfing, it was like the afterglow of surfing, you know, it was sort of, okay, I'm just going out because I know it's going to, it's like eating spinach or broccoli or something. It's like, okay, I know this is good for me, but I'm not that excited about it. And then I um, would get out and I'd be like, ah, shoot, I feel a little bit, I'm not, I don't feel as heavy. And so, so I kind of rediscovered surfing, which was a great thing. But in terms of um, writing and I guess art making, um, I... What happened with me is when I was living in New York with my late wife, I was trying to write a memoir about my life in surfing and, and it wasn't going well. And I was working on it for a lot of years and I was really obsessed over it. Um, and, and I think I was really not true to myself in the sense I was, I wanted things it, and it, I I want, I felt like I needed the validation of, a, of someone to publish this book. I, I wanted to, I was, I felt like a, a, failed or struggling writer and um i was sort of out of touch with my own life or or my own voice as a writer and and uh it's a strange thing to say but as far as uh, it's a terrible thing to say but as far as writing goes losing losing my wife was the best thing that ever happened to me as a writer because it broke me free of of so much bullshit it was just when 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 she died i had this realization of i've been living what a shame the last years of her life with us together was with a guy who's sort of distracted and obsessed with trying to get a book published and trying to write good stuff um and therefore and 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 feeling like until people realize that or until i get my footholds in the new york publishing world i can't really be happy so i was caught up in that obsessed with that and uh and the other the other thing is you know after she died it was sort of it was as if um it was as if all the sort of in in terms of like what matters in life there was all this sort of stuff clouding it or covering it there was this kind of haze over it all and 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 in the literally the moment like you know days after i learned of her death it, it was that thing just cleared and it was in i saw everything in such sharp relief hmm. of of what matters and it and in some way it made me I don't know how to say it's it's you can take so much in the world so damn seriously and you can kind of be grab grabbing onto it really really tightly um and that can that can operate on a self-conscious level of how we conduct our ourselves and our and in our social groups and wanting people's approval and sort of being like having people expect you you know being we have our friends and they sort of know us as they, they they based on some consistency of behavior, they construct something and they push it onto us. And then we construct that very thing. And we push it back to them. And so we sort of get locked into this little cage of behavior. And when I went through that, you know, everyone I know, all everyone, all my circle of, of friends all heard about it. And I suddenly became the guy that had this terrible thing happen to them. And so I felt that, that, that energy from all of them all my friends and uh and it was it you know going back to what i was saying about westerly it was like a lesson in identity and how we how we um get painted into a corner as to who we're supposed to be and and somehow i just stopped giving a shit it was sort of like all this stuff is so petty and i felt truly on the verge of suicide so i was kind of like i'm out before too long anyway so i don't even care anymore it's sort of I watched this documentary called Roadies and it was about it was a Cameron Crowe series about a band traveling band and one of those episodes there was this um, group of roadies that are setting up the the show on the tour and there was this girl who was who was going to quit um, and she was going to go back to school and then this corporate guy came in and sort of changed everything and there's a scene where he's announcing how everything's going to change and all the roadies who are like a big family are in a circle and she she says this truthful thing to him where it's like you're just full of shit and you're going to impose on us because you want to make more money and blah 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 blah. and it was kind of blows everyone's mind and later they're talking about it and someone's and 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 she, someone's commenting on what she'd said and because she was going to quit and go back to school the, the comment was people tend to be really honest when they've got one foot out the door In the wake of my wife's death, I felt like I had one foot out the door and it was as if like I was able to tap into some honesty that was this compulsive sort of um, unedited side of myself that that resonated with people because I was writing stuff and I, I sort of started and I didn't plan to do this, but I started posting about it on social media to friends, mainly just to sort of tell them what happened because I had a hundreds, and I was very grateful to have such good friends, but I had hundreds of people saying, I'm so sorry, what happened, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, okay, I can just, you know, write one thing to all those people, and that'll solve that. And then the response to that. So I I, I kind of tapped into my voice in some weird way, but very, not what I'd planned by any sure. means. But, but I'm, I'm remind, I have to remind myself now not to get too... Um, it's a terrible thing because when I was in that place, all I wanted to do was get out of it because I felt sick. I, I was—I've never been in such pain uh, emotionally, physically, mentally. Now I have to remind myself of that place because that place seemed like such an honest place, and it was—it was sort of just. I was just my bullshit detector was was flying high. You know, it was just I'm just amazed at how life can be such a cartoon, and and there was a great liberation that came from that. And so I think that it wasn't like, oh, I've got this great material to write about now, and this is an opportunity. It was more like, I'm just naturally kind of tapping into myself, and and wow, people are actually responding to it, and 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 ironically, I'm getting the uh, uh, validation as a writer that I that I wanted all along, but I never wanted it like this, you know?
0: Yeah, but again. Like I said, that's been my experience reading your writing is a sincerity, you know, uh-huh. and I don't know a lot of people who are willing to go there, uh-huh. you know, like that's uh-huh. a very personal, serious thing to share about and to talk about and to write about. And, um, I, I feel like, uh, certain
1: kinship with
0: you when I read it, uh-huh. you know, well, because thanks. it's vulnerable.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah.
0: Vulnerability is tough, man.
1: <laughs> it really is. It really is.
0: <laughs> Truly is. Um, how's that autobiography coming along?
1: Good. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been at it every day.
0: Yeah, yep. You have uh, any hopes for a timeline in terms of completion or anything? Is that your main project that you're working on right now? Or
1: Westley, we're we are nearly finished with, and then there's going to be a lot of posts, so it's going to be more kind of almost administrative work than it is, you know, sitting in a room trying to make good creative decisions. Um, but no, i I've been writing every single day, and I've been working on this novel, and that's been that's my priority. That's the thing that I'm trying. I'm most obsessed with and in and it's sort of there all the time and it's not i don't mean that in the sense of i'm writing 24 hours a day but everything i'm reading is is around it um i remember i remember hearing a writer talk about um when you when you're doing something and you're like in the groove that you become like velcro everything sort of sticks so i'm i have you know notepads and sometimes it's a single word that i hear or you know that's the word i was that's the word that i couldn't quite think of that was trying to describe that one thing and i'll scribble it down so my bedroom is now just like cards everywhere and it's um i don't know if it's a, the best process but it's the one that i've always worked with but yeah so that's it
0: well final question for everybody uh interviewed is just
1: what was the last surfboard that you wrote um A seven something or other Scott Anderson meth model that my dear friend Chad Marshall passed along to me, and it's a so it's a sort of short longboard. Okay, and it has a big single fin and two little side fins. After spending time with Derek Hind in Byron Bay about four years ago and riding his uh, free friction finless, I came back. Un, got this board, unscrewed the center fin. And so it has these two side ones. So it's really all about these little side slips. And it's almost like you get that, if you snowboard, you know that feeling where, I mean, the thing the the revelation there is that with the exception of some little, you know, um, reverse type slides, for the most part, we're going in the direction of our nose as we surf on short mm-hmm. boards with fins in the, in the rear and getting that that kind of, um, you know, being able to go on this like side slipping drift for a while, it, to me is such a fun feeling. Um, so that's what I've been writing. Interesting. Yeah. I've done it. I've got a few boards that I've written finless. Uh-huh.
0: And it just, um, my challenge with it is just, it's hard on my knees uh-huh. staying low yeah you
1: know and kind of I, being in that squat position i know the squat position i think is everything that i learned that from watching derek and somehow i have that naturally i'm really comfortable in that squat yeah. i skated in that dogtown era and everyone was really low center of gravity it was a lot of yeah. the bertelman style stuff but it, it's i've learned it's almost as if this that low tuck is is the shock absorber of the slide so it's sort of like you're going to get these kind of unexpected drifts and and that allows you to kind of accordion out of yeah. it, whereas if you surf more erect, it's sort of like you lose that, you Yeah. Know?
0: Um, is that board design like an egg design?
1: No, it's kind of a mini longboard, okay. but with a with, with a pintail. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I don't even know the length of it, but uh, it's it's really, really fun.
0: Yeah. Awesome. That's a good call.
1: Yeah. Right on, dude. Well, thank you That's, so much. That was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. I appreciate you taking I do so it. much time. Too. I do as well. Cool.
1: I can see the turning of the key. I've been deceived by the clown inside of me. I thought that he was righteous, but he's a face. was well, something better than me. I
0: went the ball and chain. Jamie went on a surf trip in 2015. He had a GoPro on the nose of his board, And on his very first wave, it came off and recorded its own sinking and tumbling around the reef while the tropical fish investigated it. The final scene shows Jamie swimming down to retrieve the briefly lost camera. The footage is spectacular, and Jamie published the visuals as an accompaniment to a written allegory of lost love. The video is called Rhymes with Shove." And you can view it, along with everything that Jamie and I discussed in this episode, including the trailer for Westerly and a link to purchase Becoming Westerly. All of it's on surfsplendorpodcast.com. There's also a comment section. I encourage you to share your thoughts on today's show. I will ensure that Jamie sees them. Also, if you'd like to hear more about finless surfing that Jamie was talking about, I'll be publishing an episode of Shaping Surfing with Manny Caro of Mandela custom shapes. He does a long Devin Howard egg-esque soliloquy about finless surfing and how that's opened his mind not only to um surfing options but also board designs and how it's influenced boards that he designs that actually have fins. So look for that in about 2 weeks. And then lastly, if you like this episode and you'd like to hear more of it in the future, consider supporting my work. There are three ways you can do that. Firstly, you could set up a subscription for five bucks a month through PayPal. The link is on our website, so super simple to do. Number two, you could sign up for a Fanatic account, fanatic.com. They ship fins to your house for just ten bucks a month. It's a fantastic way to explore and learn about fins. And uh, they literally have every single fin from all the major brands. Futures, FCS, all that stuff. So you can keep the fins as long as you want. You could try as many as you want. Ship them back whenever you're done. Uh, It's like Netflix's DVD program. It's a phenomenal service and we have a great partnership with them. So just be sure to use the promo code podcast when you sign up and you'll also get your first month free in, in addition to us getting incentivized for that. So thanks for doing that. The third way to support the show is just to tell friends about it. Our success is measured in download numbers. And I have a couple new partnerships like Fanatic lined up um, for this year. And the more downloads we receive, the better leverage I have to design these mutually beneficial deals for you, for me, for the brand. So I'll make the content if you grow the audience. Thank you in advance. Thank you also to Jamie Brissick. Happy New Year to you all. This is my first reminder of the year to uh, encourage you just to get back into the ocean share a couple of waves and shred on take
1: off your heavy makeup and your shawl won't you descend from the throne from where you sit